Oh, we've preempted 15 minutes on the early show for you in full color. We guarantee you a splendid audience. Bridge to all debts. Time for an exciting new episode of Enterprise Incidents with Scott and Steve and Ralph. I'm Scott Nance. <laughs> and I'm Steve Morris. And I've got my toga. I got my short sword, my shield. I am ready for some gladiator combat. And I'm most excited that we have once again Ralph Sinensky joining us for this episode. Ralph, welcome back to Enterprise Incidents. We are very excited to have you back for your good. third episode that you directed. It's good to be here. So before we get into it, and there's a lot to get into, like how did you come to direct your third episode, Bread and Circuses? After I did Metamorphosis, they booked me for two more. They, they gave me a date, and then when I arrived, they handed me Bread and Circuses. Oh, it's that simple. <laughs> that, that just, well, that, that's what, yeah. The, my agents would book, as all agents booked dates. Mm-hmm. And then you reported to the studio. Hopefully, you were supposed to get the script four, day, four, four days before, but that didn't always happen. On, on Bread and Circuses, it did. When you got the, the script for Bread and Circuses, what did you think? What did you think of the screenplay that is credited to Gene Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn? Well, I. Uh, Whenever I saw two names like that, I wondered <laughs> how it came to be. And I'm I'm going to find out from you today. Was wasn't there a some somebody that had written the script first, and then the two of them kept doing their versions of it? Well, uh, actually, that is absolutely true, and that's my cue <laughs> to get into <laughs> the development of this. Uh, so, so first of all. You're right, uh, Ralph. The writer of the treatment for Bread and Circuses was John Newbel. Now, John Newbel did not get a, a credit on the screenplay, not even a story by credit, even though he came up with the treatment from an idea by both Gene Roddenberry and Gene Coons. But Newbel's treatment was written on March 5th, 1967, and it was titled Bread and Circuses. So when he wrote his first draft teleplay, he changed the title to The Last Martyr. That was dated April 12th, 1967. And then he did a script polish, changing it back to Bread and Circuses. That was dated May 2nd. So it was right around this time after he turned in his script polish that John Newbel was asked to do a revised second draft teleplay that he was asked to do for free. And he declined for personal and health problems. So he basically abandoned the project. That's when Gene Kuhn came in and he wrote not one, not two, but three drafts, the third of which was dated August 15th. Then Gene Roddenberry did his rewrite, his second draft uh, teleplay dated September 11th. And then he did a script polish the very next day, uh, which was the third revised final draft teleplay. And apparently, and this is something that you'll be able to to answer, Ralph, that even while this episode was being filmed, yeah, you're shaking your head. Gene Roddenberry had revisions day of. Is that true? I will have a story about that. Oh, oh, wow. Can't get wait to get into it. But uh, some other interesting facts about Bread and Circuses 
is that uh, in addition to being Ralph Sinetsky's third episode as director, this episode was filmed between September and 12th and September 20th, 1967. It was shot over seven days, so it went one day over schedule. It was the 44th episode to film. Now, here's where the story gets interesting. The total cost for Bread and Circuses was $192,330. And that meant that the episode went over budget by as much as $12,330 because Bread and Circuses was the first episode to be filmed under the new regime where Paramount, Gulf and Western, purchased Desilu from Lucille Ball. And that caused a lot of changes this point forward. And Ralph, this is something I know you'll be able to speak directly to. And the other interesting thing about Bread and Circus is while it was the 44th episode to film, it was actually the 54th episode to air. And Steve, the Bread and Circuses was the second to the last episode of season two wow. to air. It was it was the second to the last. The very last episode to air was a Simon Earth. But for some reason, NBC pushed Bread and Circuses back to air on March 15th. Ironically, for Bread and Circuses, the Ides of March. (laughs) But that's not why it was pushed back. It was actually pushed back because NBC did not appreciate how much of a satire this was to network television. And I got to say to both of you guys, like, Watching this episode today with all the reality TV, it is amazing how far ahead of its time mm-hmm. Bread and Circuses actually was. Now, when Bread and Circuses started filming on September 12th, it was actually after a two-week break during which the cast and G. Roddenberry were making the rounds around the country on morning shows and talk shows to you know, get uh, the excitement going for the season two premiere of of Star Trek. Uh, but it was, like I said, it was, it was the second to the last episode to air. And uh, it was the highest rated episode of the season. And NBC did not give it a rerun. If you did not see it on its original run on March 15th, 1968, you'd have to wait until syndication to watch it again. So, so before we get into our deep dive with Ralph, Steve, what did you think? Of bread and circuses around the times that you saw it for the first time. You know, I know you don't know the date, but and what did you? <laughs> but you know, how has uh, how has bread and circuses uh, changed in your assessment over these years? I always enjoyed it. It has one scene that I think is one of the great, most important scenes in all of Star Trek. Honestly, um, mm-hmm. it's a very entertaining episode. And it's funny though, as I get older, and this has nothing to do with the the episode itself but the ideas of the episode there is one very big choice that is made in this episode that i have continued to have bigger and bigger problems with and that i think philosophically idea wise there's just huge missed opportunities in this episode it's not that it's not totally entertaining and enjoyable it's that i go oh i feel like there was so much more here that they didn't get to that's sort of my feeling Yeah, my feeling about Bread and Circuses is this, is that when I was growing up watching this episode, I always thought it was very entertaining. 
I think it is a very strong episode, especially for the second season. There is there's a lot going on in Bread and Circuses. You have the satire about television. You have this, the, the, the statement about, about slavery, uh, you know, which was something they explored in just a couple of episodes with Gangsters of Triskelion. You have a great mix of drama, humor, and heart. You know, there's a there's a really great scene that furthers the development of the relationship between Spock and McCoy specifically. You have great production design, costume design, of course, the cinematography by uh, Jerry Finnerman. I'm sure uh, Ralph has got a lot to say about that. And uh, it, it did start a trend of Earth parallel worlds. You have Planet of the Romans, and then we see Planet of the Gangsters, and then we're going to see Planet of the Nazis. But Watching this episode for the first time in a long while to prepare for Enterprise Incidents. And by the way, gentlemen, when I say that I haven't seen this episode in a long while, I mean, I haven't seen it in about six months. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I was really pleasantly surprised, especially watching it with, with such, a, with such a, uh, an eye for now for, for these deep dives that we've been doing that this episode works on so many levels. And Ralph, a lot to juggle location shooting, but you had two big transitions going on. First, I want to talk, I want to ask you about the transition from Desilu Studios, which was at that point run by Lucille Ball, to Paramount Gulf and Western, which was run by Charlie Bloodhorn. What were some of the things that you noticed? when you came back to the set and started working on this episode? Well, even before I got to the set, there was the new edict from Paramount that our schedules were going to change, that each day, rather than filming until 7 o'clock, we were going to quit. We had to quit at 6.12. Wow. And the edict also was, was that the shows would no longer go into extra days that they would be finished in six days. Mm. Now, taking away the, the 48 minutes a day, that's just a few minutes under a half a day. So that although the shows were still going to be scheduled in six days, in terms of the hours, we would actually be shooting it. In, they wanted it. They demanded that it be filmed in five and a half days. So, so that, that, that's what's interesting is that when I was doing my research and reading all about the the transition, that especially like like Robert H. Justman and Gene Roddenberry himself were they were excited that a big studio was going to take over Desilu, and they thought that this would this would mean a, a bigger budget, uh, access to to more resources to really increase the look of the show, make it, make it better. And in fact, the budget that you had to work with, like when you did metamorphosis, the, the per episode budget at that time was $185,000 per episode. By the time you got to bread and circuses, the budget went down to about 180,000 to $182,000 per episode. I mean, it was already a struggle to do an episode on 185,000, but now you know you're 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 losing some money there. So, so did that create more pressure for you? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. At at the time, it was just added pressure. As I look on, as I looked on it once, I left the show and then 
with time, look back on it, I think that with Bread and Circuses, that was the beginning of the end of Star Trek, mm-hmm. of the downward spiral. I think it started there. Well, one thing that sounds so strange to me is 48 minutes, taking 48 minutes out of the day, is today the, the day is really determined by unions. And so it wouldn't make sense, you know, how long the day is, is exactly a number of hours. Was the, did, did the unions have as much power in terms of how long the day was at the time? No. Okay. Then, then it makes more sense. The only power they had was that after a certain number of hours, people in the unions would get overtime, could, would get gold time, but they did, the unions had no, con, no control over how long or... They had no minimum day. No, no. Uh, no. Okay. Interesting. All right. So, so the other thing, and we, we, you know, Ralph, in the last episode of Enterprise Incidents, when we covered the trouble with Tribbles. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen that one yet, but after the one yesterday, I'm not looking forward. <laughs> I, shouldn't well, I shouldn't say that, should I? <laughs> well, well uh, David Gerald, who wrote the episode, joined us. And, uh, you know, he was talking, you know, of course, just like you, he had so much praise for Gene L. Kuhn as producer, showrunner, screenwriter. So by this time, the other part of the transition here, a big transition, was that Gene Kuhn resigned his post as producer, showrunner, at the end of August. Now, even though he had resigned at that point, he was contractually bound to stay on as producer until his contract was up at the end of the first 16 episodes of season two, that would have brought him to a private little war. And then John Meredith Lucas took over as the showrunner for the rest of season two. And I understand that he did show up on set while on location while you were filming uh, Bread and Circuses. But what, what was your reaction, Ralph, when you found out that Gene Kuhn was, was leaving the show? Well, I wasn't happy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, his leaving, I, I'm still through the years. People have asked me why he left, and I said because of purchase by by Gulf Western that he was just the extra pressure was being brought on. Since then, I've heard that that there was conflict between the two genes. That's right. And that, that of course, I, I I I did not know about, but I I was not happy because I mean. Uh, with bread and circuses he had been involved in all in all three of the shows that i've done and i'll say it right now that when i it came to my next one which was returned to tomorrow his absence was felt well, not the next one but the, the the one after the next one right right returned to tomorrow his absence was felt yeah, yeah. The, the next two you did were Obsession and then Return to Tomorrow. Well, you know, no, it's, the next one was, was Obsession, and I've said on my website that I felt his fingerprints all over that script. Mm-hmm. I can see that, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it, it, it it's such a shame because, you know, so many people have have given absolutely due credit to Gene Kuhn for, for really refining the series. I mean, the, the two prior episodes you did, This Side of Paradise and Metamorphosis, were, were right at his peak, especially Metamorphosis. I mean, which not only did he write, but he was the only writer to work on that screenplay, which is just 
I mean, that's just such a, it's such a perfect episode. Of course, you know how I feel about that episode, but I still feel like, you know, bread and circuses, it's a very ambitious episode. Again, like there's so much going on. It, it's, there's so much that it's saying, you know, uh, uh, especially when you get to the end and there's the, this, the, the surprise twist, which I feel, still think is a very effective surprise twist. I'm sure Steve's got a lot to say about that. I 100% agree. It is a very effective surprise twist. And that was worked on. Yeah. Well, well, when when you came back, uh, you know, did you notice because of all the changes, Ralph, that were that had gone on with the transition from from Desilu to Paramount, and then you know Gene Kuhn like basically putting in his notice? Did you notice any difference uh, in the way that the cast members were were acting to you and with each other? I don't think so. Not that early. I, mm-hmm. As the year progressed, uh, just the the tension of, of that losing you know, that half a day for show and the pressure to get it done in the time without going over, uh, it began to show, but I don't, it didn't, it didn't surface during bread and circuses that I remember Mm -hmm. just the, the size of the show, the size of the show and to, to do it in six days, except now it was going to be done in five and a half days. That was like trying to do an epic like Spartacus, Five and a half days. Right. Well, there are a lot of great moments, and uh, there was, I'm sure, a lot going on in the world while uh, while this episode was being filmed. You are absolutely right. As you said, it was filmed between September 12th and September 20th of 1967. You know, we've been talking, we spent months and months talking about one of the most important groundbreaking television shows of the 1960s. Well, there was another show that was also groundbreaking on at the same uh, era that was far more controversial than Star Trek, and that was the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. And on September 10th, oh, the, the, which is right before this started shooting, uh, Pete Seeger, who had been blacklisted for 17 years, hadn't been allowed on TV, was finally being allowed back on the counterculture Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour with one agreement that he would not sing the song Deep in the Big Muddy. And Deep in the Big Muddy was a, a war protest song. And they said, okay, he's not going to sing it. And he sang it. On, oh. um, <laughs> uh, and uh, which is part of the why the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour became so controversial. Um, on the same day, Frank Sinatra got into a beef with the hotel management at the Sands when they stopped his credit. Apparently, he was gambling and gambling and was too deep in date. And he got in a fist fight with the casino operator who knocked Sinatra's two front teeth out, <laughs> which I had never heard before. I never heard that. <laughs> yeah. Um on September uh, 11th, Surveyor 6 made an unmanned soft landing in the Sea of Tranquility on the moon. Mm-hmm. The Carol Burnett, Carol Burnett show premiered, which was not a counterculture controversial show, but one of the great comedies of all time. On the 12th, Louis C.K. was born. On the 14th, there's a lot of TV news going on. Ironside premiered, starring Raymond Burr. And on the next day, Mannix premiered. Mannix, um, another Desilu show. Yep. This is all... Both of them. This is all the week of uh, oh wow that's right uh, we uh, it's all the week of interesting TV stuff because Jim Morrison and the Doors had signed a deal to do seven appearances on the Ed Sullivan Show it's their first appearance they're going to do light my fire mm-hmm. CBS insists that they change one line from girl wouldn't get much higher to girl wouldn't get much 
better, which does not rhyme with fire. And Jim Morrison said, absolutely no problem. And of course, he sang the good and get much higher. And uh, those six subsequent appearances were canceled on the Ed Sullivan show. They were not invited. The door <laughs> was closed on the doors. Well, that, that That's the way the networks were operating in those days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're back. It's the week of TV stories because we're back on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour and The Who is performing on September 17th. And The Who, they decided, you know, this was a band that liked to kind of break things up. So they decided they were going to have a little explosion inside the drum kit of Keith Moon. And the uh, they it was seems like one of those things where. There were a bunch of people saying, no, no, let's make this explosion a little bigger. No, no, that's not big enough. Let's make it. And they just kept adding gunpowder to this explosion. And you can watch it. It's on YouTube. It is a huge, huge explosion. It's actually really scary. Keith Moon was injured. Uh, Pete Townsend's hearing was permanently damaged. He's deaf in one ear because Mm. of this explosion. Wow. Wow. And that is what has been going on in the world. Not a heavy, heavy week, but some interesting stories. Very interesting stories. So, so Ralph, when you came uh, to the set and you did your first like read through, uh, what, what what do you remember but, about? But, but we didn't have read throughs. I keep saying that we just came on and started shooting. Wow! <laughs> first time we sat down at a table on a show was in the third year when I came back to do. Is there in truth no beauty? And that was not for a read through. That was for discussion, as you'll get to one of these days. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. There was no read through. You just came in and, you know, you started at 730 to have your first shop ready lit by the time at eight o'clock came so that you could get an early, you know, get an early shot in a can. You usually try to find an insert to shoot first so you could shoot that so that they will know that you really got started early gotcha that's there, a great there were no read-throughs that, that's a great trick by the way to shoot the insert so you get a shot off real oh, real oh, fast yeah, yeah. you always look for a, a, a shot that could be in that you could say it was in the can by uh by eight fifteen. wow that's great uh should we get into the show let's do it if they don't move out on cue Screw them. <laughs> no doubt about it, Captain. Space debris comes from the survey vessel, the SS Beagle. Portions of the antimatter nacelles, personal belongings, no signs of bodies whatsoever. Then whatever destroyed the ship, the crew was able to get off safely. By the way, I'm sure they picked the name the Beagle because that is the ship. The HMS Beagle is, the, is what Darwin was on when he went to the Galapagos. Um, I'm sure that's why they picked that name. The SS Beagle, a class four star drive vessel with a crew of 47 under the command of R.M. Merrick. Jim, I believe you knew it. Yes, at the academy. He was dropped in his fifth year. He went into the merchant service. And we're arriving at the planet. Not only is it class M, but what they start talking about is that it's really, really, really similar to Earth. Density 5.5, diameter 7917 at the equator, atmosphere 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen. Again, exactly like Earth. Exactly in some ways, different in others. So even though, Ralph, I don't know if you know this, but even though in the episode itself, the planet was never given a name, but in fan fiction, it was given a name, and the name that it was given was Magna Roma. Oh, 
Good. Good. Hmm. Okay. That's a good name for a planet That's like great. this. <laughs> Captain, both amplitude and frequency modulation being used. Which, of course, means AM and FM radio. I think I can pick up something visual. It's a news broadcast using a system I think they once called video. Television was the colloquial term. And we put it on screen, and we get our first glimpse of this planet. Still another group of dissidents. Authorities are as yet unable to explain these fresh outbreaks of treasonable disobedience by well-treated, well-protected, intelligent slaves. And what we see is these people being let out of what are clearly hiding places. Now, Ralph, what do you what do you remember uh, uh, about filming the scenes that we see on the view screen on the bridge? Yeah. Well, there were the three location scenes where they were taking prisoners. It was two sequences, three shots, and that wasn't enough to go off the lot. So those shots were shot on just on, on the studio. In the mm-hmm. studio, we found doorways and a couple of doorways that we could use. And then we'll, when we went into the gladiator scenes, and they were all filmed in color, but printed in black and white. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now turning to the world of sports. Which is a classic news reporter segue. And this is why I totally understand the networks going, oh, you're really making fun of the news. In fact, what I relate this episode to in a lot of ways is a movie about seven years from now, which is Network which is really poking fun at about the hypocrisy of the of news media and the falseness of it. Also, the the, the way that this episode has come to be reexamined because of the advent of, of reality TV. Uh, uh, you know, when we started having reality TV shows like Survivor, you know, The Biggest Loser and, and all these other other reality shows, but specifically shows like Survivor. I mean, when we see the the newsreel footage of the gladiatorial game that's this planet's version of survivor basically yeah. and literal it's not li- yeah. yeah literal, literal sure absolutely and it just it's it's another way in which star trek was so far ahead of its time without intending to be and it it just gives this episode so much added depth to enjoy and to to really do a, <laughs> a deep dive like this and to talk about it I can't say this, that it's for sure, but I'm 99% positive that Gene Roddenberry wrote those sequences. Mm. The news the news stuff? Yes. Both. That and especially the gladiator stuff. Mm. He, 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 he was the one responsible for those sequences, I'm sure, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. of his own feelings about the network. That, oh, that that's makes true. a lot of sense. The first heat involved amateurs. Petty thieves from city prison. As we see them fighting, and it's filmed like a, a sporting event, I love Ralph that you had the camera push in on the kill. That it was it's such a theatrical TV way, entertainment way of showing a thing. In the second heat of slightly more professional display in the spirit of our splendid fast when gladiator Claudius Marcus killed the last of the barbarians, William B. Harrison, in an excellent example of and we static out of the thing. Well, Spock at this point figures out that William Harrison was one of the crew members of the SS Beagle, and he's perished in these gladiatorial games. At least there were some survivors down there. Ready the transporter room, Mr. Spock. They're beaming down. So one of the things that's interesting, most of our teasers end with a threat to the Enterprise. 
you know, something dangerous and horrible is happening. This teaser is about an idea. It's, it's a science fiction idea. What if Rome is in the 20th century? That right. is a very different kind of teaser, which I love. It's something to think about as we go through this episode, because Steve and I, Ralph, in other episodes where the landing party is threatened and the enterprise is threatened. In this case, the landing party, as we'll come to see, is threatened, but not not the Enterprise, at least not exactly. The Enterprise is threatened, but in a different way than we've seen the Enterprise threatened in, in episodes like A Taste of Armageddon or The Apple or Return of the Archons. So, Ralph, uh, filming the scenes on the bridge at this moment, because we see Kirk and, and Spock and on the bridge of the Enterprise in the beginning at the teaser, and then we see them at the end. So, so did you film all that at once? Oh, yes. And it would have been filled later. You do the stuff for the guest stars to get rid of them and then do that. Oh, get rid of them. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. You, know, you got to shoot if, them out. If, if you hang on to the guest stars extra days, that's just extra money. So that you try to they would try to get all the people coming in that were not regulars, get their stuff in as few days per each one as possible. But one of the great arts that no, that people who don't work in film don't know about is the art of the AD and scheduling. And it is always a complicated, complicated puzzle of how do I get as little time with these uh, guest actors, as little time on each location, make it all move as efficiently as possible moving from set to set. It's really hard. So when we come back to the first act, uh, the first thing that we see is the landing party. Kirk Spock McCoy materializing on the top of the hill. And there's some there's some dialogue between them. And then we see that the episode title is Bread and Circuses. As they're coming down the hill. As they're coming down the hill. And then we see that it's written by Gene Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn and directed by Ralph Sinensky. But the title, Bread and Circuses, actually refers to the ancient Roman emperor giving out loaves of bread at the Colosseum and pleasing the unemployed masses with gladiatorial games. The title is taken from book four of Juvenal's satire's poems, specifically Satire X. The quote is, it is all too easy to fall from power. The mob follows Fortuna and cares for nothing but bread and circuses. That's the quote. So in actuality, this scene, Ralph, is day one of filming for Bread and Circuses. And you're back at Bronson Canyon, where I believe you filmed part of This Side of Paradise. Right. So what was that like for you to to be on day one on location? I just come off of 19 shows with Quinn Martin, where we would do four four days of location and three days in the studio. But you always started on location, get that out of the way because of weather, whatever, and then you came back to the studio. Great. Well, that was normal. I'd like to go back and add a couple of things, though. Sure. Starting with that first shot, which I'm very proud of, because we were on a crane. We had Mm. to be, you know, because we had the long shot that brought them down, but we had the closer shot of them. Well, with the crane, you could, you were up high. With the zoom lens, we could do it. And again, with that, the terrain of the, that part of Bronson Canyon, as compared to the forestry of the other, was rocky. And you, you just used a crane 
in, in those places just to move the camera. I mean, you could never do it with the dolly. This atmosphere is remarkably similar to your 20th century. Moderately industrialized pollution, containing substantial amounts of carbon monoxide, and partially consumed hydrocarbons. The word was smog. <laughs> you know, you know, Ralph, I'm curious, like, what did you think of Kirk's green wraparound shirt? Because this was the first time you got to see that. I didn't pay that much attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, as fans, we we obsess over things like that. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. And maybe with some of the others I did. I have to say this now. You know, we've talked about Bill Shatner and our relationship, and it was fine, except I and I understand it better now because I've seen a couple of interviews that not were done at that time, but in the, the later years when Star Trek had become big. But he was asked about his the directors, and he referred to them as traffic cops. Oh, wow. And I never I, knew that. I said, oh, okay, I understand. Uh-huh. I, I understand. I, I mean, and that was really our relationship. I just needed to get that said. It's so interesting, the the ongoing conflicts between actors and directors. Because the opposite, the opposite statement was would be for me directors who describe actors as props, movable props, hmm. you know. And both of those, both of those philosophies to me, traffic cops and movable props, are totally, totally wrong. So in the earlier versions of the story, it was Kirk beams down with McCoy and Sulu, and the reason for this is because Spock is back on the Enterprise suffering from a badly inflamed appendix now huh. in the er- yeah uh, yeah yeah so so the reason i bring this up <laughs> is because this badly inflamed appendix will will have a significant meaning as the story progresses in the earlier versions of of the screenplay so just something to keep in mind cuz i'm going to come back to it but so yeah it was uh, kirk mccoy and sulu not kirk spock and mccoy that's fascinating. And then we get into an explanation of a thing that's come up a few times in various ways, and now we get a full definition. Then the prime directive is in full force, Captain. And then they say exactly what that means. No identification of self omission. No interference with the social development of said planet. No references to space or the fact that there are other worlds or more advanced civilizations. Let's go. The thing that I think that's interesting about putting out the prime directive is that, like this, is that they didn't know, and Ralph, you didn't know that there were going to be people pouring over these rules as really, really important things for decades to come. There was just, yeah, there was just a thing, well, we need to explain this thing for this episode. It wasn't like a law that was going to have a dozen shows talking about it forever. But Steve, at the same time, I feel like this, uh, up to this point, you know, in our, in our journey through the original series, in production order, I don't think we've seen the prime directive sort of such a prominent part of exactly. the plot yeah. like this in a way where they are really, really trying to stand by that prime directive. Yep. And and to the point where where even Scotty on the Enterprise is is affected by the prime directive. So uh but but it's it's something that I think makes this episode more effective because of the way everything plays out as, as we'll get to. But well, I love and the prime directive and we will get to that big scene with the five of them seated for it is, it is talked about. 
Out in the open. Yep. Um, one of the things I love, by the way, once you do a big exposition dump, is that what, what seals it is McCoy seals it with a joke. Once, just once, I'd like to be able to land someplace and say, behold, I am the Archangel Gabriel. A, it's really funny, and B, it actually helps explain what the Prime Directive is by saying what it isn't, you know? <laughs> and just as we're talking about this and joking about it, a gunshot. And Kirk just just instinctively moves into like sort of a uh, an, an attack position, and he's he's ready for a fight. He goes to grab his phaser, and they shoot again and say they say don't move. So as we see uh, three, uh, you know, a few people, you know, sort of come up from behind rocks. They've got rifles, and as they get closer, they're wearing like gray attire, and one of them is clearly the the leader of this group. Flavius Maximus and it's played by Rhodes Reason who on TV did shows like White Hunter. He had his own show Bus Stop, uh, 77 Sunset Strip, The Time Tunnel and Here's Lucy. He was on Here's Lucy a few times. On film he was in the movie King Kong Escapes. And (laughs) in the the 80s he played Daddy Warbucks and Annie on Broadway. So Ralph, what, what was your take on working with Rhodes Reason? I thought he was wonderful. He was great. Just, just wonderful. In fact, the the three guest stars on that, we'll get to Smithers and Logan Ramsey, all three of them, they were absolutely sensational. They are great. I I agree completely. I love Flavius. I think he's a great character, and I think the actor does a great job. Right. We come from another province. At which moment he sees Spock, and this is where I kind of go, wait, We've just explained the prime directive thing, but you've done nothing to disguise Spock at all. <laughs> but we get a great joke, which is, we call those, I call them ears. He goes, are you trying to be funny? And Spock goes, never. <laughs> That's Gene Kuhn again. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That of is course Gene it is. Kuhn. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah. And, and, and throughout this whole thing, we're commenting on how close this is to 20, the 20th century Earth. And they think that these are guards, that these are Romans, that these are the bad guys. I should kill you here. Septimus would probably be displeased. Oh. I love this shot you have, Ralph. This high angled, you got the guy yeah. with the rifle in the foreground and and our people way in the background down below. It's super cinematic. This is just a great shot. Well, and it's to establish that, yeah. that it's a guarded area, that it's, this is not just a group of people out for a picnic. Well, and this is this thing I've said every time we've had you on the show is how much storytelling you put into the camera position is that the framing of the shot tells you the story rather than telling it through cuts and, you know, POV shots and things like that. You're doing it with how you frame the shot. Yeah, absolutely. But that's, but you know, they, they, they are called moving pictures. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. So, um, so Ralph, I'm curious, like, like as you were filming this scene, you know, the scene where the slaves meet the enterprise crew and then they're 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 taking them to their hideout was this all shot in one day yes wow that's a lot that that and then these the stuff after they leave the cave oh the the sun shot after they leave the cave and then the shot of them behind the tree when again when the romans take them that was all on the on on one day yeah. That's a lot of pages. That's a lot of dialogue for the cast to remember. It's really and, mo- and, and movement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And movement. 
no, and, gu- and guns in action. Yeah. So, and then we cut to this cave and this older man comes out of the cave and this is Septimus. Septimus is played by Ian Wolfe, who Trek fans especially will recognize as Mr. Ataz from the second to the last episode of season three, the terrific episode, All Our Yesterdays. But what a phenomenal career on the big screen Ian Wolfe had. Uh, He was in 1935's version of Mutiny on the Bounty. He was in movies like Rebel Without a Cause. Witness for the prosecution. Steve, stop me if you covered any of these oh, no. files. He, he was 71 years old. Wow. He, he he came he came from Broadway in 1934 and he shot his last movie in 1990. Do you remember what his last movie was? Yes. Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy. I gotta say, this is why Ralph Sinetsky should be our permanent third co-host on Enterprise Incidents. <laughs> you finished my you finished my job. I, I actually have it here. I was so excited to say that Ian Wolf's last movie was Dick Tracy and Ralph just like beat me to the punch. Uh, but on TV he was in he was in shows like The Green Hornet, The Invaders, The Partridge Family, Night Shift. He was on the short-lived TV series Barbary Coast with William Shatner. He was also in classic comedies steve that i know you'll love like all in the family so sure. taxi driver and barney miller oh wow. what a what an amazing career now now ralph didn't you choose ian for this role no 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 because i mean i kind of knew of him and you know and once he came i knew he was you know that he was a veteran i didn't realize how much until the later years and especially with the internet and imdb <laughs> wow. and, uh, I mean, I, I regret that I didn't know more as much as, as I know now that I didn't know then to talk to him, although we wouldn't have had time to talk anyway. No. Right. right. Well, yeah, sure. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. I love this line because it establishes so much about Flavius's character. His first line to Septimus is, I didn't harm them, Septimus, as much as I wanted to. Wow. Mm. That's a great, great line. And Septimus replies, Keep always in your mind, Flavius, that our way is peace. For which we are grateful, for we are men of peace ourselves. And this is the first we hear of something really important. Are you children of the sun? Ralph, no matter how many times I've watched this episode, whenever I hear the words, are you children of the sun, I automatically think of the sun in the sky. Yeah. And, and even though this is an episode I've seen probably a couple hundred times, I'm still conditioned, especially because of a shot that we're going to see in just a few moments that I know that, that, that it's like, Oh, children of the sun. Like it never occurs to even, even Spock who's usually, you know, kind of ahead of the game or, or, you know, as Steve has pointed out many times, Kirk is such a, an astute observer that it never occurs to any of them that it's not S U N it's S O N. But that's just one of the other things that just makes this episode so so satisfying. Then let me tell you this. When I got my first script, and my big immediate concern was that the script, for me, it telegraphed that mm-hmm. it was S-O-N. And I went to both the two genes, and all most of these lines, they they were written in to do exactly that. And, and then once they gave me uh, Septimus's final speech when he sends him out, and he talks about the sun. 
I said, oh, and I, I knew I was going to do that shot at the sun. Yeah, that's a good fake out. It's so effective. I had one comment left on my website on that one who said that as many, as many times as he's seen it, every time it gets to that sh- that shot, it's a shock. Yeah, well, we'll definitely get to that shot because I, I like the way you did it, too. It's very interesting. Well, uh, if you're speaking of worships of sorts, we represent many beliefs. And that is uh, that's interesting, Steve, because do you know what I thought about when when that line was said? No, I don't. I thought of Kirk's reply to Apollo mm. in Who Mourns for Adonai's when he said, we find the one God quite sufficient. And at first I thought to myself, did, did Kirk kind of contradict himself by saying that? But then I realized that, you know, believing in a God, a God, the one God uh, that he refers to in Who Mourns for Adonai's, and having many beliefs are two different things because you can have beliefs that don't necessarily rely on a deity. True. But I, I, I think there's contradictions in there, but but let's let's move on because we'll we'll definitely get to some of these issues. And and of course, Flavius is still distrustful. And and it seems in this culture that they are either Romans, which from these people's hiding out in the caves perspectives are the bad guys, or slaves. I know killing is evil, but Sometimes it's necessary. No. But they've located us, our hiding place. It's better to kill a few of them than all of us. Well, he said this, this is such a great mm-hmm. a great uh, view into Flavius's character. And and like you pointed out, Ralph, uh, I thought Rhodes Reason just did a really great job with this episode. I mean, he, he just has such a charisma. He is such a presence. Yes. He's, he, he's just so, so good. And I think that he's great with Shatner, actually. Great chemistry there. And then Kirk does a really weird thing. Wait. I can prove we're telling the truth. A small device. And he goes for his communicator, and at first they pull up their rifles, because he goes, no, no, it's not a weapon, fine. And he pulls it out, and he calls up Scotty. Scotty here, Captain. Scotty, lock in on my transmission beam. Scan us. Scanning, sir. Including ourselves. How many of us are there? Twelve, Captain. And I love the response that... Flavius and Septimus have. Septimus says, Tell me the Empire has a device like that, Flavius, and you may kill them. Otherwise, accept them as friends. I think the moment works. I think it's totally bizarre, particularly because we literally just had the explanation of the Prime Directive, and now you're pulling out communicate your communicator and demonstrating this technology that's well advanced of anything on the planet, which they literally said you shouldn't do as part of the Prime Directive. And if I were Flavius and a distrustful person and the person I have captive just demonstrated way advanced technology, I would not feel good about it. I would oh, be more stressed about it. But but the way that Kirk said, the Enterprise is our ship at sea. It is not a spaceship in, in space, in the sky. So this little box could just be a walkie-talkie of sorts. And I I think that's why certainly... Septimus was not alarmed by the technology. If anything's going to be alarming here, it's going to be the wardrobe that they're wearing, which is completely different from anything that the Romans have. And certainly the appearance of Spock with the, with the eyebrows and the ears, but, but the way that, that they've, especially in this case, Kirk has said our, the enterprises are ship at sea. We come from a province. Uh, You know, he's, he's really trying to uh, dial back, you know, the presence of, you know, the Federation and their appearance as as something grounded in their world, just elsewhere in their world. 
and we move inside this cave and we're hearing Kirk's log, which by the way, I kind of go, how is he always giving these logs? <laughs> Sometimes, you know, if he's captured by someone, he still manages to give logs, but that's okay. And we're in inside the cave and he goes over what's happening. One of the interesting things he says is as he describes this planet, he says, an amazing example of Hodgkin's law of parallel planet development. But on this earth, Rome never fell. What a great, well, that's the that's the tag right there of this episode. What if Rome never fell? What what a provocative idea. Like, what if Rome never fell? And here's the interesting thing. So all these years that I've watched this episode, I would say decades that I've watched this episode, I always assumed, Ralph, that the scene that we're watching right now was filmed on stage 10. But it wasn't, was it? No. Where was it filmed and who shot and who lit it? It, it was it was at Bronson Canyon. Bronson Canyon. So you yep. shot in actual caves at Bronson yeah, Canyon. It was when you saw them walk into the cave there from, from the exterior that they walked into that interior and uh that Jerry's lighting and photography in there, because all of that was done from the floor. I mean, there was no hanging lights as you have on a sound stage. You're lit from the floor. You had to run cable to generators, you know, and we were doing all of that and all of the exteriors. That's what in one day. Amazing. 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 Of of course it is. And And by the way, that that was also, I believe, the the, the Batcave that was used for the Batman TV series in 1966. Yeah. Wow. Probably. I mean, it was a much used exterior location for all of Hollywood. No, Captain. I'm sure I would have heard of the arrival of other men like you. Perhaps you've heard, let's say, an impossible story or a rumor of men who came from the sky or from other worlds. And again, I'm going, the prime directive you literally just said, you can't mention anything about other worlds or civilizations more advanced than your own. It's literally like last scene, (laughs) but it's fine. And they say, and I love this. There are no other worlds. The stars. Lights shining through from heaven. It is where the sun is. Blessed be the sun. That's really amazing, because at this point, you still don't know. I'm sure that was another line added to emphasize the sun. I want to point out that when Spock brought the magazine over before this talk about the sun with the God's names, I'm sure that was added again to build up this whole thing to get away from sun sun or i mean it, it, it's amazing like even though you know the ending and know it like verbatim because you've seen it so many times it is still such an effective establishment of the sun being the sun in the sky i, I mean you know i i was watching this uh episode with my girlfriend for the first time she had no idea that the sun was the son of god that was our intent And and by the way, I think all the details, the Jupiter 8 car, the magazines, all these little things, they're great details to fill, A, to fill out the world that it's Roman, but B, to make it very 20th century American Earth. Jupiter 8, Mars toothpaste, Neptune bath salts, taken from the names of false gods. When I was a senator, I worshipped them too, but I heard the words of the sun. I became a brother. For well, that, they made me a slave. I love the fact that Septimus was a senator. I think mm-hmm. that it says so much about his character. 
And Kirk is basically asking for help because we need to go back into the city and find these friends of ours that we've lost. Perhaps you know his name, Merrick, Captain Merrick. And everyone turns around. They all stand up and, and Septimus says, Merrickus? And Kirk is like, okay, we're getting closer to the root of the problem here. Clearly, uh, Merrick is there and everyone knows who he is, which is a big problem for the Prime Directive. Merrickus is first citizen. Butcher. The word butcher. It's key. If he is your friend, you are no friends of ours. Which means, by the way, that he, he went from prisoner to really important guy really, really quick, um, which I never quite, it's a part of the story that doesn't quite ring right to me. Well, what makes you think that Merrick was a prisoner? Well, all of his people were prisoners and were being put to death in the arena. But Merrick was not, I, I never assumed for a second that Merrick was a prisoner because oh. when he meets right. the proconsul, you know, when he meets the proconsul, he he works out a deal with the proconsul. Absolutely. He, he he orders the rest of his men while he becomes first citizen. I never thought for a minute that he was he was a prisoner. No, you're right. I actually, I misspoke. I don't mean that he was a prisoner. I merely mean that he went pretty high in the power of Rome right away. As Kirk could have if he had wanted to stay on there. Oh, that's a good point. That's a great point. And that is it. That is exactly why Merrick admires Kirk, because Kirk is going to be in the same position that Merrick was in, but each of those men handled it differently. And that goes back to what we were established about Merrick, that he failed the psychosimulator test. We'll get to that. (laughs) Well, that literally is where we are right now, because Kirk asked for their help to get them into the city, and they go away to decide whether or not they're going to help Kirk. And that is when Spock asks. Curious, Captain. Were you told why Merrick was dropped from the Space Academy? He failed a psychosimulator test. All it takes is a split second of indecision. Hardly the time to become a political strongman. And it makes me wonder, like, I don't think this was the Kobayashi Maru. I don't think that's the test that he failed. But I am. it does make me wonder who was Merrick in Starfleet Academy. Mm-hmm. I that these people should worship the sun. Why, Doctor? Because, my dear Mr. Spunk, it is illogical. Rome had no sun worshippers. Why should they parallel Rome in every way except one? What I understand is, uh, you know, I don't know enough about Roman history, but apparently they did have sun yeah. worshippers. But for the sake of the episode, I guess it still it still works. Yeah. The slaves have decided they are going to help them and Flavius is going to guide them. And then we hear, and this is the shot we've been talking about for a while, we hear Septimus say, May the blessings of the sun be upon you. And there's that dissolve to this. The, cut. Sh- it's the a cut. cut. Yeah, it's cut. a cut. But it's a great cut because it's it's a shot of the sun blazing in the sky and the camera looking up as Flavius and then Kirk and you know McCoy and every you know they pass by. It's such a great shot. It's one of the shots that have all that has always stood. And tell us about setting up that shot, Ralph. You just aimed at the sun and walked people in front of the camera. <laughs> yeah. What, what's interesting to me, more interesting actually than the shot, is where the cut is. Because the cut is at a weird place in the middle of the line. It's halfway in the middle of Septimus' line, which really highlights the word sun. Because well, you cut, cut right there. But, that, but, that, but that's done in the editing room. In other words, right. we, we shot the sequence, and I'm sure that there was more time on the sun before the, the body came through. 
and there was more time, maybe more bodies came through, and then you 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 trim it to what you want in the in the editing room. Well, and that's why I think the editor uh, made a brilliant choice because cutting it at that moment makes me focus even more on the sun is the sun in the sky. It, that storytelling is really strong to me. Yeah, absolutely it is. Are you a slave, Flavius? You are barbarians indeed. Not to know of Flavius Maximus. Flavius Maximus. Like, we're so proud that he was Flavius <laughs> Maximus. Um, well, and there's another great gladiator named Maximus that comes wrong about 30 years later with uh, yeah, Russell right. Crowe. Russell Crowe. Are you um, not entertained? <laughs> and, and what he hears is that he was a big, big, most successful gladiator in the province. And then he heard the words of the sun. The words of peace and freedom. It wasn't easy for me to believe... I was trained to fight, but the words, the words are true. And Kirk starts to ask some questions about this because this is really interesting. And then automatic weapons. The automatic weapons come from Danish Madsen M50 submachine guns. These are Roman cops. How how do you set up that shot? So you have Kirk and Spock and McCoy and Flavius behind the trees and then you have the rounds go off and you see the trees, you know, obviously hit, quote unquote, by the guns. I, I don't know how they did that, really, to, to see stuff coming off of the tree without hurting. I, I don't know. that. That's the special effects guys who just knew what they were doing. Clearly. But, Clearly but, they knew what they were doing. <laughs> but with the four of them, it did make board sting if you instead of just having them in a circle with individual close-ups. It's also a, a shocking moment, like, like, when you're watching yeah. the episode, it, it shocks you. You like, whoa. Have we? I don't think we've had automatic weapon fire in Star Trek. We had Sulu had the handgun in Shore Leave. He had a revolver. Other than that, I think this is the first time we've heard gunfire like this. We yeah, had the absolutely. strafing runs, strafing runs from the uh, airplanes in Shore Leave because it's a shocking moment. And yeah, it it's, sure is. And it seems like these are just the patrols that go around to capture runaway slaves. Four fleeing fish. A fine haul. And then he sees Flavius. Flavius Maximus. Who attacks and immediately gets knocked down. Then he sees Spock. Oh, not slave. Barbarian. It's been a long time since I've watched barbarians die in the arena. Which actually, it was like yesterday because we just saw a barbarian die in the arena on the bridge when they were watching TV. He said the last of the barbarians, William Harrison, is dying. But it doesn't matter. And that brings us to the end of Act One. Yeah, but let, let's go back to that officer, Bill Bramley, mm. who had played Officer Krupke on Broadway. Oh. And in the movie. And he was a favorite of mine in 1963. I used him in. A breaking point. Uh, I used him in from then on in two different suspense theaters in three different FBI's. He was a sensational actor. So Officer Krupke in the stage and uh, obviously the film version of West Side Story. Yes, yes. See, this is why Ralph, our third host. <laughs> well, Bill Bramley was a favorite, and unfortunately, and I just found this out the other day when I was. Looking on IMDb, he died very early. I think he died in, oh, his, oh, oh. in his 50s. Oh. Well, well, as we as we come back into Act 2, 
I love this shot that really establishes what Rome would have looked like in the 20th century. You have the stock footage while Kirk is giving his captain's log and says, oh, only on this world, Rome never fell. And the establishing shots to sort of set up a 20th century Rome were actually the Great Dome at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the Palace of the Legion of Honor yeah. in Paris. How did you uh, find this? Uh, that's the edit- editing department. They just find them. Wow, oh, that's amazing. That's they amazing. Find them. They just find them. They, they, they know. So when we see the establishing shots using the stock footage of what Rome would have looked like in the 20th century, you're, you're hearing Kirk talk about the Roman Empire of the 20th century and the music cue that is being used because all of the music that was that was used in in bread and circuses was stock music. They was they did not record a new score right. for bread and circuses, but the music cue that is used is the music cue that was recorded for Mirror Mirror when we were establishing the empire in the Mirror Universe, and now we're using that music to establish the empire on this planet. Mm-hmm. And we cut to, we're in a dungeon, and they carry Flavius in, and Kirk goes in. Tell Maricus I'd like to see him. And he's like, well, I'm not going to go call the president and say that you want to see him. That's nuts. Tell him it's Jim Kirk. Perhaps a friend. Perhaps? Well, if I am a friend, and you don't tell him, do you really want to risk that? Boy, does he know how to manipulate the situation. Great Kirk moment. <laughs> Great Kirk moment. It's later on, and McCoy is treating Flavius, and we hear... But if there have been slaves for over 2,000 years, hasn't there always been discontent runaways? Long ago, there were rebellions, but they were suppressed. Which immediately makes my brain go to Spartacus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And with each century, the slaves acquired more rights under the law. Uh, They received rights to medicine, the right to government payments in their old age... And they slowly learn to be content. The institutionalization of slavery within the society and in a post New Deal world like that, that is such a kind of fascinating science fiction idea of how a modern 20th century world and bureaucracy would incorporate and institutionalize slavery. That's sort of fascinating. Not anything we spend a lot of time on, but. And this is also, you know, these are not. Slaves like were read, you know, from from the 1800s. Uh, you know, these are not black slaves; these are white slaves. But it's still slavery, and uh, it is such a uh, one of the great layers of this episode is that it tackles so much effectively like this. Can I get a word in here, Joe? Yes, please do. The photography in the cell. I mean, those were just gray walls, and le- and Jerry with his coloring of the walls. I mean. There's a shot of Bach, a reverse shot with the others at the other end of the cell where his wall is red. He has, again, brought drama into what was really a drab setting. Mm, Wow. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, Finnerman is a genius. That's a great point. And, uh, And as we're talking about this idea of institutionalized slavery, McCoy says, Quite logical, I'd say, Mr. Spock. Just as it's logical that uh, 20th century Rome would use television to show its gladiator contest or name a new car the Jupiter 8. I love Spock's reply here. Doctor, if I were able to show emotion, 
Your new infatuation with that term would begin to annoy me. <laughs> and I love that Flavius has a reaction to that. Flavius uh, turns to Kirk and he says, uh, are they enemies? <laughs> they don't know. I'm not sure they're sure. <laughs> What's funny to me, by the way, is if you take the time to say that if I had emotions, this would annoy me, you're saying this annoys me. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You are. <laughs> um, Again, Gene Kuhn. That's got to be Gene Kuhn, for sure. Kirk asks about when the slaves began to worship the sun. Long ago. Perhaps as long ago as the beginning of the empire. Which, in terms of our world history, is exactly right in terms of when Jesus uh, arrived and when the empire began. They are almost exactly the same time. The message of the sun, that all men are brothers, was kept from us. Perhaps I'm a fool to believe it. It does often seem that man must fight to live. So right now, Flavius is talking with, with Kirk, mm-hmm. and he says the line, man must fight to live. Flavius is literally speaking Kirk's language, because what does Kirk say in the episode, Ralph, that you directed first, this side of paradise? I'll tell you what he said. Maybe we weren't meant for paradise. Maybe we were meant to fight our way through, struggle, claw our way up, scratch for every inch of the way. And that is what Flavius is saying, that man must fight to live. So you're having this connection between Flavius and Kirk, because here is Flavius on this planet, and he's saying basically the same thing that Kirk has said literally in this side of paradise. It's part of what make this, makes this episode weird to me, because th- I'm so glad you brought that up. I think that's a great point. You go on believing in Flavius. All men are brothers. There's a weird thing where the Enterprise, and this is what we'll get to at the end, associates with this message, all men are brothers, total peace, the message of the sun. And yet what you just pointed out is in a lot of ways, Kirk actually associates with what is believed to be wrong in that philosophy, which is what Flavius says, all men must fight fight to live. There's there's weird stuff in here that isn't dealt with a lot, I think. Well, well, at at the same time that that they're saying that all men are brothers, I think you can have it. I think you can you can support both both reasonings that all men are brothers, but man must fight to live because. First of all, you're talking about an episode that was filmed in September of 1967. So there were two things happening while this episode was being filmed. Certainly two things that would have affected the writing or the rewriting by both Gene Roddenberry and Gene Kuhn. One, of course, is that the flower power from the summer of love was still in the air because it had only been a couple months since like, you know, Sergeant Pepper and Haight-Ashbury. But the other thing was that the civil rights movement was well underway. And that is man fighting to live. And all men are brothers. That was the purpose of the fight, was to support that all men are brothers. You're fighting so you don't have to fight. So it's all interconnected. At least that's the way I see it. And let me add, and it's still the way it's happening today. 100% yes. I agree completely. Same thing. Flavius, your friends are waiting for you. You've already been matched for the morning games. Which means that Flavius is going to have to be a gladiator again. I will not fight. I am a brother of the sun. Put a sword in your hand and you'll fight. 
I know you, Flavius. You're as peaceful as a bull. And they take him away. You know, the, the interesting thing about that is that Flavius was a fighter. He was a great gladiator until he heard the words of the sun. And those words spoke to him. He liked what he heard. But instinctively, he is still a fighter. He wants uh -huh. to believe the words of the sun. And this is why I feel like Rhodes Reason really gave a fully realized oh. and dynamic performance. Because you, you see he's he's he he is a fighter. Clearly, he is. We're going to see him do that uh, a couple of times. But you see that he really wants to believe the the, the words of the sun. And as he is taken off, I, I, I was thinking about something that, Steve, you pointed out many times throughout our journey on Enterprise Incidents. Kirk says, three against three, we may never have a better chance. And this is where I thought of Kirk, the observer. Mm -hmm. He sure. picked that up mighty fast. And that is something I never noticed before until, Steve, you mentioned many times and pointed out how great is how great Kirk is as the observer. And it's also him being the person of action. Like this might, we don't wait attack now. And we go, right. It's so funny at this point, McCoy, they're so good at knowing what Kirk's tricks are because he says, I doubt if he'll get very far. He feels ill. I do. So first of all, the fake out, you're, you're faking that one person is sick to get out of the situation is something that we're going to see, see them use again, especially in an episode like by any other name where Fox, Spock fakes being sick. And they start walking out carrying McCoy. And of course, he does double over and now we're into a fight. And they do pretty well. And then we hear, well done, Jim. And you see Kirk's reaction in shock. We see clearly this is Merrick. This has to be Merrick. Now, just to just to be clear, when Kirk says he knew Merrick, he never met him. Like this is the first time he's actually meeting because Merrick says, yes, it's me. Now, Merrick is part of a, a group of characters we've seen in Star Trek, uh, ship commanders who lost their way. You have a Decker who lost his way and his ship and his crew, rather, big time in the Doomsday Machine. And you also have Captain Ron Tracy, who, like Merrick, blatantly disregarded the prime directive in the Omega Glory. But Merrick is played by William Smithers, who on film was seen in movies like Papillon and Death Sport. On TV, he was on Peyton Place, The Avengers, Mission Impossible, The Mod Squad, and he had a recurring role as Jeremy Wendell on the 80s TV show Dallas. Um, you said something, and I want to just clarify. Did you say that you thought that Kirk had never seen Merrick before? No, I, yeah, Kirk. Kirk said, you know, in the in the teaser, Spock said, Jim, I believe you knew him. But Kirk didn't know him personally. He may knew he knew of him, but I think it's seems to me that that they never met face to face until this moment. Oh, I always thought they met face to face. I always assumed that they he did know him. They were in the academy together, and this guy failed out in the last year. Well, they were in the academy, but not necessarily at the same time. It's certainly possible that they didn't know each other, but it but I, I always assume they did because because he even says, you know, yes, it's me. I mean, if he would. Why would he say that if he if he already if they had already met met previously? But also uh, we also at this in the same shot, 
are going to meet for the first time, proconsul Claudius Marcus, played by Logan Ramsey. And uh, I think both of these guys are absolutely fantastic. Now, uh, Logan Ramsey was in movies like Walking Tall, Any Which Way You Can, Fat Man and Little Boy and Scrooged on TV. He was in For the People, which was the TV series that William Shatner was in right before he got Star Trek. Mannix, Mission Impossible, Mindy, Mark and Mindy, Battlestar Galactica, Quincy and Knight Rider. And, and Ralph, you, you had said earlier in our conversation that you thought all three of these actors, Rhodes Reason, William Smithers, and Logan Ramsey were all terrific, and they are. Yeah. But uh, tell us a little about William Smithers first. Well, I, I, did, I didn't know much personally about him. Again, I, I had not worked with him before. I just knew the name. Joe D'Agesta cast him, and we came on the set, and he just was great to work with. I, I didn't know him. I knew Merrick. Oh, how, how about, uh, uh, oh, you mean Logan Ramsey? Huh? And Logan Ramsey. I I thought he was very much like Charles Lawton back at yeah. the side of the cross. Yeah, yeah I can totally a, see that. He He's a great villain in this episode, oh, oh, I have to say. Oh, it, 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 it's, a, it's a wonderful performance. Um, and a couple of interesting things happens. The first thing is that Merrick says, and I think this is a key line. I'm afraid it isn't that easy. They've been handling slaves here for 2,000 years. Which means that your little clever pretend to be sick thing, these guys have seen it before. That's the first thing. <laughs> That's the first thing. And, the, and then the other thing is this moment between Americus uh, and Kirk. Lots to talk about. And then there's a pause. And looking very strongly at Kirk, Merrick says, Lots to explain. I agree. Don't judge me before you know the facts. That's a key line. Don't judge me before you know the facts. And you know what? Even when we hear the facts, we're going to judge you. <laughs> and then the other really important piece of information, because we've established the prime directive and what the rules are, which was really important in Act One, because now we hear. Come on, we can talk freely here. The proconsul knows who and what we are. Now, what's interesting is that in earlier in earlier outlines, the Federation ship survivor was not a human named Merrick, it was, and I never knew this, a Vulcan, a Vulcan named Jaroth. So hmm. the reason this was taken out was it would not make sense because like Steve pointed out early in this conversation, it would have been impossible to hide an alien appearance like this from like uh, a big government, like the one that we have here. It's a High angles, we enter into these very luxurious quarters. Well, a celebration, a meeting of old friends. Which is why I think they knew each other. They had to know, know each other. So this is a Vulcan. Interesting. From what I've heard, I wish I had 50 of you for the arena. Which, from what we see, would probably be a pretty good show if you could get him to fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we've seen Spock fight already. We know he's a good fighter. <laughs> This other is your ship surgeon? McCoy. It's a pity we can't let him loose in our hospitals. Our level of medicine would improve immeasurably, I'm sure. Which is all evidence that this guy knows all about them. And instead of using that to his to, to the advantage of their society, all he wants is fighters in the ring on the games for big ratings. We asked Merrick what happened, and we find out there was meteor damage. They beamed down, and that he met this gentleman... 
He convinced me it would be unfair to this world to carry word of their existence elsewhere. Contamination. Can't risk that. And then for the first time, Kirk asks... What happened to your crew? Does not get an answer. Did they voluntarily beam? Come ashore? Yeah, he catches himself and yeah. says, come ashore. So, Ralph, while you were filming the scene with William Shatner and uh, and Logan Ramsey and William Smithers, like, I mean, the, the, these these actors are really they're really great together. It's a it's a powerful scene. Uh, did anything stick out of uh, at you while you were filming this moment? No, it's just the, because I had the five in, in the circle around the table mm-hmm. and. Uh, what I do not like would be to shoot a master in five close-ups. Right. So you break it up, and I have cross shoulders with Kirk and Merrick. I have cross angles with Spock and Doc. And then I had close-up, close-ups of each of them. But mm-hmm. to break it up so that it doesn't – the the other just becomes – boring the feature i made i had a lot of conversation with six people and i foolishly did too much of singles and it was boring and to point out something that i won't go into technically what it means but there's this thing called the 180 degree rule or the line which shows how which directions people are looking and for a scene like this it's really hard it takes a lot of mental figuring out to make sure you're not breaking the rules and of course ralph you did it all beautifully let me let me tell you something i know about the 180 degree I, yeah. I never used it. I just visualized the matching the, the matching shots. And and it just clicked in your head without oh, yeah, a problem. Yeah. It just did. It. I think one time in twenty six years, I, I woke up four o'clock in the morning and I, and I said last yesterday you mismatched. Um, I, having taught <laughs> a lot of students in film school, this is a really hard concept for people to get. So the fact that it comes naturally, you and you know, I have a guess of why, maybe why, because you have a theater background. And thinking in terms of a proscenium stage is one way to really help you understand where the camera should be in terms of the line. Absolutely. But I won't go into technically what all that stuff means. <laughs> if people want to know, we can, we can explain it another time where we talk about it on the cinephiles a lot. Um, okay. Um, I lost my place. Oh, aren't you doing this by rote? But, but from memory? <laughs> I wish. This is an ordered world, Jim conservative world based on time-honored Roman strengths and virtues. And again, Kirk asks, what happened to your crew? The fact that Merrick has not answered, we are already establishing that he is ashamed at what he did, that he knows he did the wrong thing, and that he turned his back on his oath, on his crew, and he is a weak person. He is a weak person, and we are going to see just how weak he is from this point forward. And again, in trying to avoid... The question, he keeps talking about this civilization. He says, There's been no war here for over 400 years, Jim. Could, let's say, your land of that same era make that same boast? I think you can see why they don't want to have their stability contaminated by dangerous ideas of other ways and other places. By the way, I love that if you you watch the pro-council, he's totally enjoying this conversation. Oh, yes. I think he's a great character, yeah. And Uh, and so, so, but the thing that's interesting is that Spock understands the rationale oh, yeah. and, and logic. Yeah, it's, it's logic. This is a, another way in which Spock's character is further developed that he understands, even if he doesn't approve 
Because remember, Steve, back in A Taste of Armageddon, Mm -hmm. when Anand Seven was was explaining the entire deal that they have with Vendicar and, you know, the whole thing with the, uh, uh, the, the fusion bombs and whatever. And Spock says, I do not approve. I understand. And then just recently in the Apple, there mm-hmm. was a, a big conversation between Spock and McCoy, where McCoy is completely against what's happening to the Valiants with Val, uh, where Spock is saying, look, doc, these people are healthy and they're happy. So Spock understands the r- rationale, but he obviously, he, I mean, he does not approve of it. Well, I think what's so great about it, and I'm so glad you pointed it out, Scott, is that what Spock saying this does is, I hope, the idea is to shake up the the blind obedience to whatever system you got born into so that because our naturally go like, well, the way we do things must be right without examining it. And by Spock saying, no, I understand this or or let's think about this is forcing you to go, well, wait, are there other ways to approach this? And even with some that we might really not like still go, oh, I see the logic here. And I think, again, Spark, Spock's arguments are very strong uh, because McCoy says Next, he'll be telling us he prefers it over Earth history. They do seem to have escaped the carnage of your first three world wars, Doctor. They have slavery, gladiatorial games, despotism, situations quite familiar to the six million who died in your first world war, the 11 million who died in your second, the 37 million who died in your third. Shall I go on? And before we go on, I just have to correct Mr. Spock here. I have it too. Go ahead. Oh, my God. This is hilarious. Uh, so Spock says that six million died in World War One, when in actuality, between eighteen to twenty-three million died in World War One. Now that's that's not just soldiers; that's civilians. Spock says eleven million died in World War Two. That's way. And in fact, that's way low. Between sixty to eighty million died. Of course, that is not just civilians and and uh, soldiers, but also part of the Holocaust. So Spock said that 37 million died in World War III. That is really, really low. And, uh, and the company, the organization that was used by the producers of Star Trek to ensure accuracy was called the Forest Research. And the Forest Research suggested that the number of people who, quote unquote, died in World War III be changed from 37 million to 260 million. But for whatever reason, uh, Gene Kuhn ignored the advice of the forest research and kept the numbers for World Wars 1, 2, and, and 3, what they were, the ones that Spock said. Um, but it is uh, just the, the back and forth between Spock and McCoy. It's, it's just such a great dynamic that you have these completely opposite ends of the extreme arguing their points and making very strong points in favor of each way. But I'm glad that what you've done is that you've now at least put the blame not on Spock, but on Gene Kuhn. (laughs) That's a good point. Um, And I love that, A, the pro-counsel then turns this question on to Kirk, and I love Kirk's very diplomatic and specifically directed response. And you, Captain, uh, which world do you prefer? My world pro-council is my vessel, my oath, my crew. What happened to your vessel? You've explained. What happened to your oath is obvious. And that leads to this question he's been asking this whole time. And as for my men, those that were able to adapt to this world are still alive. 
Those who couldn't adapt are dead. That's the way it is with life everywhere, isn't it? That's a lot of a statement and a lot of a rationalization Merrick just made. And this is another example of just, you know, the fact that Merrick wound up commanding a crew of 47. He probably shouldn't have even gotten that far. He shouldn't have been command at all on a deep space vessel if if he was could be so easily swayed and influenced to send his men to certain death. You sent your own men into the arena? Just as I did, Jim, you're going to order your own people ashore. I think Merrick is a fantastic character. I think he is a really, really well-constructed character. And I love how many rationalizations he's had to build in. And this latest one is, there. you're going to do the same. No matter all your starship thing and that you succeed. I got kicked out of the academy on a technicality. You're no different from me. You're going to do the same. That's how he's constructed the world. Wishful thinking. Yes. You must know that's impossible. Starfleet regulations are designed to circumvent any such order. There may be over 400 men on your ship, Captain, but they can be brought down if it's handled properly. He has the advantage of he's had Merrick to study. He knows all about how all of this stuff works. Your communicator, Captain Kirk. That do save us all a lot of unnecessary trouble and issue the appropriate orders. All right, first of all, that like there it is that Kirk is being told his crew is to beam down. And when Merrick says to him, They're going to be arriving soon anyway, Jim. A recon party, then a rescue party, then another rescue party. I had less men. It added up the same. You see that Merrick is, he's not coming from a place of strength. He's almost like he's coming from a place of desperation to force Kirk to have his crew beam down. You know, you know uh, I, the proconsul's menace is far more effective than Merrick's. I'm not scared of Merrick. I'm scared of the proconsul. Well, and, and Merrick is defensive. Right. He, he's saying that Kirk will do this to prove that he was right in exactly. doing it. Exactly. I think there have been several great supporting characters in the course of Star Trek. And I think Merrick is another one who has a fully oh. realized journey through this episode. By the way, I also think that there's a huge difference between the Beagle and the Enterprise. The Beagle was damaged and a small ship. Like, there is no way the whole, I don't, there's no circumstances at all ever that the entire Enterprise crew would beam down to this planet. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. But that, that's not a criticism of the show. I just don't think, I think the Proconsul and Merrick are wrong. That won't happen. Um, well, well, well Merrick, Merrick even says that, that Kirk, you know, he says this later, that Kirk commands not a spaceship, but a starship, right. a very special vessel. Do you really believe I can be made to order my own people down? I believe this, Captain, that you would do almost anything uh, rather than see these two dear friends put slowly to death. And he has the communicator, and McCoy says, Jim. And I love that Kirk gives him a little look. Kirk Enterprise. Bridge. Scott here. Scotty, if you have a fix... And just as he says that, the Roman guards come in with their machine guns drawn, and they are standing on on each side of Kirk, ready to basically blow his head off. Yes, and that's the way the script read. And the next cut is to the proconsul with his hand under the table that he has summoned them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What I think is so great about this setup is it's always more one of the mistakes people make is they want to set up how great their hero is and frequently what you want to set up is how great your villain is is that what this shows is that he that the pro council is a step ahead oh, yeah that's yeah, really the, key 
And and the other thing about so there's a lot going on in the scene. I mean, clearly there's a lot going on. Kirk yeah. being told to, to. It was a long scene. How how did the shooting of that scene go? Did it because because these actors are terrific. Yeah. Well, I shot that scene, and then there were two more scenes later with Kirk and the slave and Drusilla, girl. Yeah. And and that was the day's work. But I mean, it was a long, long scene with a lot of coverage. The the amazing thing is that I certainly picked up watching this episode with this, you know, fresh set of eyes is how cool and how confident Kirk is. Oh yeah. He does not lose his cool. Like no. I feel like Merrick is kind of losing his cool the way oh, he's yeah. felt the way he's telling Kirk to, you know, beam, beam your crew down, you know, that they're going to keep sending other rescue parties. You might as well just beam them down. And Kirk, he, like when he opens his communicator, you're right, Steve, he gives uh, McCoy like a, uh, 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 it's cool. cool Don't worry. Yeah. yeah. And now we have this pause. He's halfway through his message to Scotty. And now we're going to have a little conversation. Captain, what are you going to order your men to do? If I brought down a hundred of them armed with phasers. And Pro Council has an answer for this. Uh, you could probably defeat the combined armies of our entire empire. And violate your oath regarding non-interference with other societies. I believe you all swear you'd die before you'd violate that directive. Am I right? Uh, Steve, am I right that maybe you thought of another episode at this moment? I thought of a bunch of episodes, but maybe the apple would be one in specific. I was thinking more of a taste of Armageddon. Absolutely. 100%. Because when the proconsul says your vessel could lay waste to the entire surface of the world which is what Kirk threatened to do when he ordered General Order 24 in A Taste of Armageddon. Now, that made me think of something else that I've never thought about before because I haven't gone through the episodes in the way that we've been going through them on Enterprise incidents. In A Taste of Armageddon, the Enterprise is threatened. In Return of the Archons, the Enterprise is threatened. In The Apple, the Enterprise is threatened. But it's a little different here in bread and circuses the enterprise is not threatened not exactly there is a threat to the enterprise but it's different than those other episodes because in those other episodes aminiar 7 and val and landru were attacking the enterprise directly in bread and circuses the threat to the enterprise comes through captain kirk it's through him that the proconsul is threatening the Enterprise. It's different from those other episodes. What I would say is that it's Kirk and Spock and McCoy who are being threatened. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they're being used to leverage the Enterprise. I don't think the Enterprise – I agree with you. The Enterprise is never specifically under threat. It's a very different way in which the quote-unquote Enterprise crew is threatened. And they are threatened, but they need, but the proconsul needs Kirk to order the crew down and Kirk will not let that happen. The other thing I love is that is, is the proconsul is going over what he knows about the prime directive. Spock confirm, confirms it by saying quite correct. And, <laughs> and, and I think this episode does, and there's a reason for it, does such a great job of advancing and focusing on the McCoy Spock conflict. Must you always be so blasted honest? But the way he slams his fist down on the chair and goes, must you be so blasted honest? The boss Kelly is terrific in this episode. Well, they always are. Again, and I love that Merrick understands he's commanded a spaceship. And he says, 
Jim, you've already started a message. Your engineer is waiting. What are you going to do? And there are long looks, and there's a pause, and Kirk, in his casual way, gets back on and says, Sorry to keep you waiting. We were becoming concerned, Captain. You were a bit overdue. Order your officers to come down. Condition green. All's well, Kirk out. And then he slams the communicator shut. The pro Consul is furious and... This is a great, this is a great scene. There's no way he's going to beam his people down. No way. And Merrick says, and I think this is a critical and important line. He says, Ah, that was stupid, Jim. This is not an academy training test. This is for real. They're taking you to die. Ouch. Wow. The reason I think it's important is why is Merrick not the captain of a starship? Because he failed an academy training test. I know it seems like a small deal, but what's so interesting to me is that Merrick didn't get that the whole point of the training test was someday you might have to do this for real. And so what Kirk Kirk goes like, yeah, I know it's real. That's why I passed all those tests because I played them as if they were real. And Merrick didn't get that. No, this is actually what it's all about is being willing to die. To, for the prime directive, for what was right, and he wasn't willing to do it. That's the moment. And what all of this was also proving is that Merrick is his whole attitude. He's subject to the proconsul. Right. And, and there it will be a scene not too far from here where the proconsul sends him out because he's not man enough to listen right. to the conversation yeah. between mm-hmm. two men. So he he his whole thing is that he is basically a weaker man. Absolutely, and, he is. And at this point, he's fighting for his own survival. And you know, not only is Merrick a weaker man, but the proconsul does not respect him. Of course, absolutely. Which, but he respects Kirk, which, which Merrick knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he knows it exactly. Well, I think you know his whole way of surviving without you know, honor and courage is to believe to some degree that honor and courage are myths, that they're not real and that anyone who follows that must be a fool, which is what Kirk, he's like, Kirk, you must be a fool. This isn't an academy training test. This is really your life. Uh, And they march Kirk, Spock and McCoy out. And I have a question for you, Ralph, is because the camera uh, is on them and then the camera tilts down to the brazier, to the fire, and then it cuts to the proconsul for the last one. And I wish they hadn't cut. That was my question. My assumption was the fire was, that was what you wanted to be the end of the act. Yes, yes, yes. And later, I've recently read an interview of, by the film editor, his feeling was that if, if he stated that you know that you always cut to a re, to a reaction shot right and that's what he did there and he did it even worse in another coming episode oh i can't yeah i can't wait because it was so clear to me that you had set that up to oh, be the final oh, shot of the act. yeah uh and that is of course the end of act two in act three we start finally back up on the Enterprise with Scotty, who explains what Condition Green is. Captain Kirk and his landing party have checked in, but they have used the code term Condition Green, which means they're in trouble. But it also prohibits my taking any action. And he calls up Chekhov and he says, Pinpoint power source locations, type power load factors, and how much our beans will have to pull to overload them. That may take some time. Let, Let it, it take, take time, time lad. <laughs> I, I think Scotty's a great leader. So Scotty was told condition green prohibits, prohibits him from taking action. And what is he doing? 
he's taking, taking action. action. Absolutely. Because that is Scotty. That is the Scotty who who went back to uh, Capella 4 in Friday's Child after disregarding what turned out to be a fake distress call from a Federation starship. Scotty is exactly the person you want in charge of the Enterprise when Kirk and Spock are not there. Although, no no, no shade to Sulu. Sulu was good in Arena, <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, this is, and I earned the mercy, but clearly Scotty is, and, and just the way Scotty, he's, the way Scotty is controlling the situation, the way Jimmy Dewan plays it is so perfectly because Scotty is leaning into his engineering skills to take action. That's a good point. I have a question. Yes. I wonder if Kirk doesn't know, realize this. By giving him the condition green. That's the way his, his way of finishing the conversation. Now, Scotty knows that that's don't take any action, but Kirk also knows that Scotty's going to think that. He knows that Scotty's going to yeah. do something. He's just yeah. basically saying, you know, if you're going to do anything, don't make it so obvious, <laughs> yes, yes. which is exactly what he does. Absolutely. I think that's totally true. Ralph, I'm very curious about how you approach these next sequences, because what we're going to see is we're watching a TV show about making a TV show. And so this must have been really interesting for you and how you approached it. We end up, we're on the set where these sporting events take place and we see the cameras and we see the announcers. And now my guess is, was this just on the regular set where we looking at the floor of the, of the soundstage here? Stage 10. Well, not only yes, yes, we were. And don't forget, I spent four years in live television doing right. that. Oh, wow. That's right. Um, so, so you must've been like, this must've been uh Real fun oh, for you oh, to that, shoot. That, that, that was easy to do. The, the only thing is that our announcers were always in an announced booth, and here they just had them on a platform looking yeah. down. Which but, doesn't but, make any – it doesn't but, make but any the, sense. The cameras with the, the people, with the cameraman moving them around. I mean, you know, I, I was around that for four years. And does that voice uh, sound familiar to you, Steve? Uh, it does not. Who is it? Uh, the voice of the announcer, uh, the announcer who we see actually is Bart LaRue, who, oh. who you know is saying before your son, son burned hot in space and before your race was born, he's the voice of the guardian of forever. We're going to see Bart LaRue in person again in the upcoming episode Patterns of Force. He was the voice of one of the providers in Gamesters of Triskelion. He was the voice of Yarnick in The Savage Curtain. And Depending on who you talk to, he was uh, the voice of Troyan's father in The Squire of Gothos, which was either Bart LaRue or James Dewan, depending on what you read. Yeah. I know when we did our deep dive of The Squire of Gothos, I, I, I said that uh, the voice of Troyan's father was James Dewan, but other reports say that it was, in fact, Bart LaRue. And he, you know, he's just got that great uh, voice for a voiceover. <laughs> And I love that they just align like, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, live and direct from City Arena and in color. That stuff so locks it into, this is just showbiz. This is TV, you know? And we hear that we're going to a tape commercial for 40 seconds, and that's when Kirk and Merrick and the pro-council enter. Kirk is handcuffed. They go up to sit down in the stands. Uh, and, and Shatner does a really good job, I think, of showing how stressed he is when people aren't looking and then putting on the swagger and the confidence when he needs to, when the pro council 
is paying attention to him. He's great at that. I mean, yeah. remember just when we were talking about the deadly years that that when he was in the command chair after he started to age, you know, he tried to show that he still had, you know, the ability to do that. And then when no one was looking, he would look scared. Uh, Shatner was great and stuff like that. Income McCoy and Spock, they're holding short swords and shields. And first tonight, ladies and gentlemen, a surprise extra. In the far corner, a pair of highly aggressive barbarians. Strong, intelligent, with strange ways, and I'm sure full of a lot of surprises. I love announcer speak. You know what I mean? Like, just the, we are trying to make you excited in this show, except for the fact that this show is going to involve people getting killed on camera. But it's just showbiz. Well, one thing that's uh, interesting about the earlier outline of this episode is that instead of Spock and McCoy fighting two other gladiators in earlier versions, it was supposed to be Spock fighting Kirk. Oh. So, Steve, what does that sound like? Mock time. Exactly. And that's why Dorothy Fontana said, hang on a second. Uh, So she pointed out the similarities and said that we should change it. And they did. Uh, but remember earlier in this conversation, I pointed out how uh, Spock was originally back on the Enterprise because oh, he had yeah. a bad appendix. All right. So later in that script, Spock beams down to the planet. So, of course, he gets captured. So in the scene where Kirk has to fight Spock in the earlier version, Spock had Kirk. He said to Kirk, stab me in the heart. That's where my appendix is because oh. no one on the planet knew that the, the, the Vulcan heart is actually lower in the body. And since Spock was having a bad appendix anyway, he said, basically said to Kirk, stab me in the appendix. You know, I, I have to have it taken out anyway. You know what I mean? Um, anyway, <laughs> that, that was an earlier uh, sort of development from one of the earlier scripts. And this version is better. Although, <laughs> let me warn you ahead of time, this is the scene that I have great problems with. Oh, well, interesting. Well, let's talk about those problems. Well, 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 let's, well tell me when we get there and we'll yeah, get yeah, yeah. So, through. So, um, and then we have... Flavius and another gladiator come in and I love that there is of course an applause track because we're faking that there's a crowd here and you did a great push in on Flavius as he realizes the people he has to fight are Spock and McCoy let me add that the other gladiator was Max Clevin who was a stuntman that I had worked with in New York on Naked City Oh, he he played Achilles, the other gladiator. Yes. Yes. Mm. Yeah, see? Let it go. I love it. <laughs> um, and it's time for the fight to begin. Begin. The master of the games. Mm. Yes. Who says, uh, you know, we'll do a special on you. Gene Roddenberry wrote that. Oh, he did. He does. <laughs> uh, Jack Perkins plays the master of the games. So there was a scene shot. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because it led to one of the all-time great bloopers on the uh, that old blooper reel. So Jack Perkins, in the script, he's, his line was, if they don't move out on cue, skewer them. But when it came to say the line, Jack Perkins said, if they don't move out on cue, screw them. <laughs> And Shatner busted up laughing, and it's one of the great bloopers on the blooper reel. But uh, yeah, and and actually, when when they were watching the dailies, Roddenberry saw that Jack Perkins said "screw them," and he he I he I think he 
said to you know make sure that the people the the actors really enunciate their dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the fight starts, and uh, McCoy's up against Flavius, who's taking it real, real easy on him because he's clearly not much of a fighter. Spock is easily defending himself against this other guy, and I was curious: did Nimoy have fencing training or sword training? Because he look, he moves really he's well. Yeah. yeah, he looks really good. I tell you, I'm well able to defeat you. Fight, barbarian. And Merrick turns to Kirk and says, Most of my men went the same way. I hoped I would feel it less with yours. Which means that, I mean, he did have to watch all a lot of people, many of whom were probably his friends, die in the arena. This is where we see Merrick start to regret everything that he has done. Because he is seeing Kirk's two of Kirk's men fighting and he realizes that he was wrong and he admires he first of all he admires and respects kirk for holding his ground and he is also jealous because kirk is the man that merrick could never be i think that's true except maybe tone it down a little bit not not quite that strong <laughs> I, I don't give him quite that much credit sure but I, he's aware but i'm not sure that i, I just don't feel that he that he would go as far as, oh, I'm so sorry. Well, right. and I think, oh, for sure. I think yeah. there's a progression. Like, I think that this is the first moment of weakness. You know, the first chink in the armor or the defensiveness that he's created is right is happening right now. Um, but it's going to go further as it goes along. Um, and, and then we get to this moment, Scott, that you mentioned where Flavius is taking it easy on McCoy. He gets whipped turns around angry, and we hear, You bring this network's ratings down, Flavius, and we'll do a special on you. I love that line. I think that is a brilliant line because it creates this whole idea of like, well, wait, what happens in a special? Like, why would Flavius not want that? It's obviously terrible, you know, and and I love that it's ratings. That is what we're talking about. That's what's important. It feels like a Roddenberry line. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, that's, a, that's the one that made the show the next to the last show of the season mm. and no wow. reruns. Mm. Wow. Um, he could have no been reruns. that line. And then Kirk asks a key question. Spock should finish his man off first. Will he be able to help? We believe men should fight their own battles. And that's a very important line. The Romans have always been the strongest. And they've had practice for over 2,000 years in enslaving men, using them, killing them. Quite true, Captain Kirk. The games have always strengthened us. Death becomes a familiar pattern. We don't fear it as you do. And those are lines that I think it's overwritten. My problem with the scene is the scene should be Kirk's concern for the two men in the battle. The whole thing is the battle. And there's mm. much talk up there that, that gets in the way. And I've I've always felt that I had done something wrong that the battle scenes weren't strong enough and i realize now they're they're pretty strong if you just stay down with the battle and mainly go up into the to to kirk at, for kirk's concern and the proconsul's watching him and you don't need the words let the action do it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i couldn't agree more I think all the sword fighting stuff is good. It's totally well shot, and I think it's interesting. Yeah. I think the, the, these lines you point out are key because these are like expository lines about 
Rome and the strength of Rome and why oh, yeah, Rome, yeah. Don't, don't who cares? I mean, the, the, one of the questions I'd always ask my film students is, is what is the scene about? That, and it's always, and it's a question that frequently they would look at me like, I don't understand the question, which is. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that's the basics. Yeah. And it's that <laughs> this scene is about Kirk having to figure out what he's going to do. How is, is there a way for me to save them? How am I going to respond to this? It's all about his, that's where the emotion of the scene is. It's certainly not about Roman history. That's not what it's yeah. about. Yeah, but even beyond that, it's not really what is Kirk going to do because Kirk is defenseless. There's nothing right. he can do. He just is having to sit here and worry that his two friends yeah. are going to be killed. There's more booze and Flavius is getting whipped and, and I love that he yells at McCoy. At least defend yourself. I am defending myself. Hold your weapon higher. That's it's, good. That's good. Yeah, he's so great. I am defending myself. <laughs> and, and Flavius gives him some instruction mid-fight. Admit it, you find these games frightening, revolting. And then you see Kirk put it on. That I wish wasn't there. Why? Because it's about Kirk's concern for the man, for the, the guides out there, not Kirk putting on a show of hmm. how strong I am. What? I mean, it's not about this scene. Is not about Kirk, except as he is aware of, of his people. This oh, I see. I see. Bothered me all these years because me. Uh, where I, I really, I really thought that the episode itself was was a failure be, because it doesn't have the climax that I'll tell you when we get to it. Oh, okay. That it needs. Let, let me let me ask this question, and maybe it would be a, maybe it's a tough question to answer, but you know, film is always about showing things and about actions. Absolutely. What would you what would you have Kirk do? Is there something you would have him do to show that concern in a way that we do other than him just watching and being and reacting? If, if you just cut to his face and just his facial reaction should should be doing it. Okay. Well, you actually do see a reaction because yes, because, yeah, because, because Kirk it's there, it's it's there. We just don't need all this other work, all right. this other stuff where he then is pretending that it doesn't matter. Right, right. He, you're, he's, ta- you're taking the, you're taking the strength out of the scene by mm-hmm. Kirk's doing what he does in re- reaction to showing that he doesn't care. Like, like Steve, what's the line that Kirk says? He goes, "I've seen proconsul. I've seen things that that I've you- seen forms of entertainment that make this look like a folk dance." Lose it, lose it, lose it, lose it. Okay, we're going to reshoot it. (laughs) And and you'd lose. I've had to select other men to die before so that others could be saved. You'd cut that too. Say it again. Uh, I've had to select other men to die before so that others could be saved. That line could survive, but I'm not. You know what? What, What's happening, I think, that's hard is is that because what I think they're trying to do is set up the contrast with Merrick. You're a clever liar, Captain Kirk. Merrickus was a spaceship captain. I've observed him fairly. Your species has no such strength. That's not what the scene is about. The scene is about, I don't know, Spock and Doc being... <laughs> being <laughs> Spock and Doc. danger of losing their lives and Kirk having to sit and watch it. <laughs> what, what I think they're doing and is that they're, they're trying to do what Scott was talking about before, which is advance the Merrick story of what are the pieces that make Merrick eventually he's going to turn because we have this. And that's not important at this point, really, is it? Um, I I don't know, because this line is, the next line is one that I think both Scott and I have always focused on as a really important line in Star Trek, which is... He commands not just a spaceship proconsul, but a starship. Very special vessel. 
and crew. I tried for such a man. I think that's a key key line. It's a it's a it's a character is a secondary character. I, but, I mean, but, yeah, that's just my feeling. I, I completely understand, but at the same time, what makes that line work so well? What makes it such an important line is that it's establishing that Merrick is never going to be the man that Kirk is. He's never going to be the commander that Kirk is. He's never going to command the starship. He just didn't have it in him to do that. And, uh, you know, he admired Kirk for, for his abilities, but at the same time, he realized his own shortcomings through the process. And that's one of the things that makes Merrick turn at that key moment in act four, which we'll get to. Can also that also happens in the scene when the pro consul, as we'll get to it, yeah. comes to Kirk after he's had the evening with the slave girl. Right. And when pro consul sends Merrick out of the room because there's no reason for you to stay here and watch real men talk. Mm-hmm. Right. It's right. It's there. It's there. So I'm I, 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 because I, I've got a I've got an ending that I wish we I could, can't wait. I could have shot for the scene. So I, I know we got to move on, and I'm, so I'll say this really, really quick. But the thing I always think about when I'm writing is I frequently am going, well, how do I have my cake and eat it too? I want to have this thing, and I want to have this thing, and they kind of contradict, and how can I figure out how to write it to have them both? Is that I love this Maricus line about spaceships and starships. and and so, But I also 100% agree with you, Ralph, of, of where the scene is focused is, yeah. isn't quite right. So I'm going like, well, how if I were to rewrite the scene, which I'll think about later, how would I figure out how to make both of those things work better? Um, but if you have to lose that, like, let's let's keep going because I, yeah. I want to add something. It's quite a long fight. Um, and Spock is basically, he could end this fight at any yeah. moment. Yeah, he's and, holding and, back. And, and, the, and the cuts are quicker. And then there comes the spot. McCoy falls. Mm-hmm. And that's when it cut to a shot of Flavius standing over him. Now there's no reason not to kill him. Mm. Then you cut to the master who takes the whip, throws the whip out at him and says, kill him. Mm. And then Spock goes into action. Well, they do get this beat that I, I, that totally works. They do get this beat that I do like, which is the guy Spock's fighting insults him, calls him a painted ear freak. And McCoy goes, you tell him, Buster, all the completely ridiculous, illogical questions I ever heard in my life. He's basically just trying to get Spock pissed off. <laughs> well, r- right away, as soon as Spock stops holding back, he knocks out, you know, Achilles, gives uh, Flavius the neck pinch. Right. And there are huge boos because this breaks the rules. But but to build up that moment where McCoy falls, where Flavius is there, I'm ready to kill him. He's being urged to kill him. You've got a climax to the scene. The yeah. way it is right now, there's no climax. It just sort of eh, mm-hmm. yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep. And a scene I totally like that, see that needs a climax. Fire foul, Proconsul. Your decision. Your opinion, Mericus. After all, they're like yourself. This is clearly a test, because Mericus should decide to have them killed, and he totally he can't, do it. can't do it. It's your decision, Proconsul. Your opinion, Captain Kirk. You'd like me to kill them now? An easy death. And you'd gladly accept whatever happens to you. And he doesn't answer. Take them back to their cage. Well, it won't go that easily for them, Captain. Or for you. So then they take Kirk out under machine guns. And that is the end of Act 3. Yeah. Wow, that was a great act. It's Act 4. 
and Kirk is shown into this room. And I, and I love, again, Ralph, you did storytelling within the shot, which is in the foreground. We have the fruit and the wine, which tells us that this is not, we're taking into a very much more luxurious space. It's not going to be a torture scene like we might expect. Keyword being not like we might expect. <laughs> and, 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 and you always do this thing, Ralph, that I like a lot, which is that you're moving the camera that creates an opening, a space for a new character to move into. And there enters Drusilla. Yes. Drusilla played by Lois Jewell, whose only other TV role was the flying nun. And that was it. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. I she was a model, but not, uh, not much of an actress. <laughs> and she's true. Although did, she did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she's I, very good. I, and I have, read, I've read that she too, like Jill Ireland, once she was cast was concerned about the wardrobe. Oh, is that right? Jill, I've read, was concerned, you know, when she was cast in Paradise because she had seen, I think, what her little girl's made of. Oh, yeah, Sherry Sherry Jackson. And then when she came there, and Bill, of course, had a great costume for her. Yep. Lois, was, I've read, was also concerned and also was concerned because of the love scene afterward for how it might go. And she said that when she saw it, she relaxed and she 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 liked what she saw. I know that she she felt like Bill Shatner was a was a consummate professional, and she really yes, liked yes, working yes, with him. Yes, yeah, great. But That's great going to hear. Into it, she she wasn't sure. I am proconsul slave Drusilla, although for this evening, for this evening, I was told I am your slave. Command me. And now we get pretty clearly what this scene is kind of oh, about. Absolutely. And Kirk's first reaction is this is a trick. It won't work. Not work. And then he yells to the proconsul, thinking that he's being watched or observed. Which he probably was. <laughs> you hear that, proconsul? It won't work. And then she touches his shoulder and he turns around and she says, We're alone. Please believe me. I've never lied to one who owns me. Um, the tw- 21st century Steve has issues with this scene. The uh, 12-year-old Steve had none. Yeah, I feel the same way. The uh, 21st century uh, Scott has issues with this scene. Uh, I'd never thought about it much other than thinking it was a pretty cool scene when I was a kid. Uh, Always a pretty hot scene. But, uh, I mean, I don't know if this scene is necessary at all, Uh, especially with the way it contradicts Kirk's character that he's resisting. He's resisting the Romans in in every single way, but he gives in to a pretty woman just to have sex with her, just because why not? Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And it's a Gene Roddenberry scene. Uh-huh. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah, it, it, it's a it's a weird thing because I think clearly the in, the intention of the scene is that she is completely a hundred percent willing. It's totally fine with her. She's probably attracted to Kirk, and this is not a big deal. That is that is the and, and, and I tried to keep it not a big deal because as soon as they kissed, the camera went up to the to the lamp yeah. and then mm-hmm. came back down. And it did provide one of the funny lines later. It does and absolutely when he comes back and well, when we get to it, I'll tell you the line. Yeah, I know the line. What I'm thinking of. Yep. Mm-hmm. So when we when we started, Scott, and you asked me what I thought about this episode, and I said there is one scene that is I think one of the great scenes in Star Trek. We're there. The sales team. Oh, it's my, it's, it's the great scene. Oh my God. Yes. And this is Gene Kuhn. 
And we're in the dungeon and Spock is in the cell and he has got his hands on the bars and it's very clear he's testing the strength. He plays with the lock. McCoy is sitting there in the background. Spock is growing increasingly frustrated, obviously. And McCoy says, Angry, Mr. Spock, or frustrated, perhaps? Such emotions are foreign to me, Doctor. I'm merely testing the strength of the door for the 15th time. This scene is... Like you said, Steve, it's one of the great scenes in all of Star Trek. I agree. Now, Ralph, <laughs> when you were filming this scene, what was it like with Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly? How many, do you remember how many, how many takes you had to do? Probably one take for, for each setup. Amazing. Amazing. Oh, no, because they, they were, they knew what, they were ready to play it. And what the way I'd staged it was very comfortable for them. And a, a lot of it is staged in a master. Mm-hmm. Doesn't get into close-ups until they're back in that final in the position. Corner, yeah. The rest of it is just in one one shot, one, one setup. Steve, what is it about the scene that, that has stuck out at you all this time? I think there's so much um, truth and subtext about their characters, about their relationships. And I think in so many ways... They see each one sees into the other in in lots of ways and then doesn't see into the other in lots of ways. There, there's just there's so much truth here. Like just starting with, is Spock frustrated and angry? I think the answer is a hundred percent yes. McCoy sure. is totally yep. right about that. And then McCoy is going to do something, you know, we and it's well set up in the episode. That's part of the other thing that makes it work, is we've had them in conflict multiple times in the episode. We have Kirk's line saying are they enemies? I don't know. Sometimes I'm not even sure if they know. That's setting <laughs> this moment. And then yep. McCoy, in his most you know honest way, comes up. Spock. And Spock is ignoring him. Spock, uh, I know we've uh, had our disagreements. Uh, maybe they're jokes. I don't know. As Jim says, we're not often sure ourselves sometimes. And it's very obvious that McCoy is trying to say something heartfelt. Do you think that Spock knows that McCoy is trying to say something heartfelt? Yes, 100%. I do. And what he is doing in this moment is going, I can't deal with this emotion right now. Correct. Yes. What I'm trying to say is, Doctor, I'm seeking a means of escape. Will you please be brief? Up to this point, before the, the direction this conversation takes, one of the things that I've always liked to do when I'm able to do it, Steve and Ralph, during Enterprise Incidents is mirror a scene from the original series to something that happens in one of the movies. So this moment here, the scene where McCoy is basically saying, Spock, I want to thank you for saving my life, reminded me of the scene in Star Trek III when they are on the Klingon bird of prey on their way back to Earth, you know, before all the stuff happens with the probe and they have to go back in time. And McCoy is trying to have a tender personal moment with Spock where he basically is saying, I'm glad that your Catra is back where it belongs in you. And he says, uh, are you busy? And he goes, Uhura is busy. I am monitoring. He's basically having in Star Trek three at that moment, though not, not for as intense as it's about to get in bread and circuses, He's having the same moment. You know, McCoy goes up to him with his guard down, wants to just share a personal moment with Spock. And Spock is like basically saying, 
I don't have time for this right now. And that's exactly what happened in bread and circuses. I hate to say too, when someone comes to you emotionally somewhat open, I think McCoy is showing courage. You know, that's, that's not that easy to do necessarily. And Spock's way of shutting him down is horrible. Well, what I'm trying to say is you saved my life in the arena. Yes, that's quite true. I'm trying to thank you, you pointed-eared hobgoblin. <laughs> and of course, Spock knows what that thank you and you're welcome and what this is, but he is too afraid, I believe, to deal with these emotions that he's feeling right now. And so instead, he takes the superior, condescending, insulting position and says, Oh, yes, you humans have that emotional need to express gratitude. You're welcome, I believe, is the correct response. It is so cold and so unfeeling. Um, and it's all covering, in my opinion, insecurity, which is what we're going to get to. However, Doctor, you must remember that I'm entirely motivated by logic. Not true. The loss of our ship's surgeon, whatever I may think of his relative skill, would mean a reduction in the efficiency of the enterprise. I want to ask another question. Does Spock think uh, poorly of McCoy's skills as a surgeon? Absolutely not. No, he thinks he's great. He I thinks th he's the best. He's yeah. basically saying, you know, I, I save you because you're you're the best uh, chief surgeon and, you know, not having you on the Enterprise would be bad. But he's making a joke like he doesn't think that because he says whatever I may think of his relative skill. He's he's but of course he does think that. And it's then he's a compliment in his in his Vulcan way of saying. It. And then he's in this corner sitting and McCoy enters the frame and turns him and puts him sort of against the wall. <laughs> beautifully staged ralph on your part because it's intense i think mccoy comes at him with a lot of intensity and physical almost dominance in this moment there's no crying you're not afraid to die spock you're more afraid of living each day you stay alive is just one more day you might slip and let your human half peek out do you think this is true so far yes i do uh, i think oh, yeah. that uh that that McCoy really has Spock figured out in a way yep. that that he never has before, and that that is because of all the time that they have served together. And, and I think McCoy has thought this thought for a long time, but not voiced it. And the moment that Nimoy turns away, there's a little half a smile on DeForest Kelly's face, because I think he knows, like, oh yeah, I got it. That's it, isn't it? And security. You wouldn't know what to do with a genuine, warm, decent feeling. Uh, there's a lot to say about this moment. There's a reaction. He turns back to McCoy and says, Really, Doctor? What do you think's going on here? Everything you've talked about, but all pushed down. Yes. Very quiet. Yep. And mm -hmm. slow. And without any push. It's just a quiet very quiet scene and very close. I mean, yeah. once they get into the corner, I mean, the shots are really right in on them. So they really don't have to, it's all in their faces. Yeah. But you shot them through the bars. You, you, you didn't like, you know, go on the other side of the bars and just shoot the close-ups up. Well, you I, shot I, them I through the bars. One, one shot inside of the bar when I was across McCoy to, to Spock at the wall. It, but well, uh, otherwise I was outside in the, but the bars between, which it just looked better. It does look good. It looks great. See, it's a very intense but controlled scene. Yes. Yeah. 
all, all of those emotions you're talking about, but they're underneath tempered down. Yeah. They're in the subtext, which is the best way to do drama. Of Absolutely. Course. Of course it is, Ralph. <laughs> so up to this point, I asked, is McCoy right? This, his last line, why you wouldn't know want, what to do with a genuine, warm, decent feeling. Is McCoy right there? No, I don't. I think he's, uh, I don't think that he's right at all. Spock knows what to do with a feeling. He knows, but he knows how to do it. Spock knows how to handle a warm feeling. So I've always loved this scene. I've always thought it was great. This last time watching it got even deeper to me because I feel like I finally got it, which I don't think I got before, which is the moment of Nimoy, of Spock turning back and saying, really, doctor, is in response to this line, you wouldn't know what to do with a genuine, warm, decent feeling. The scene started with Spock being frustrated and McCoy seeing that he was frustrated and Spock denying that he was having those emotions. The reason he is frustrated is because he's having a warm, decent feeling. His love for Kirk is what's frustrating him right now. And so what and so McCoy, who was right totally up to this point and knew he was frustrated, didn't understand what was really going on on a fundamental level until he turns back and says, really, doctor, because not only does Spock know that that's the feeling he's having. But he knows that deep down McCoy understood the feeling he was having, which is the purpose of the whole conversation, if that makes any sense. So he turns back and says, really, he's like, dude, you know, I'm frustrated. You know, I'm having this feeling right now. And there's this pause. And McCoy understands all of everything I just said that took me 40 years of watching this episode to fully get and says, I know. I'm worried about Jim, too. Great scene amazing scene that scene just elevates what i think is already a, a stellar episode and one that is often overlooked for i don't know why oh absolutely i agree <laughs> and of course we go from this moment of these his two best friends in the world really really worried about him because what do they think might be happening to kirk right now well they think he's getting tortured tortured killed horrible horrible things and, and that's th- not what's happening and then in <laughs> and then it, McCoy says i know i'm worried about him too mm-hmm. and of course we cut to kirk with his hand on the wine with the Drusilla. he's eating the wine is excellent the drink is excellent i've been in some strange worlds strange customs perhaps this is considered torture here Torture? I do not understand. I do not wish to see you tortured in any way. And she kisses him. And I again will say, I think the intention of this scene is that she's 100% willing. This is consensual. She's attracted to Kirk. I think that's the way the scene is done. But today, and thinking about it, she is a slave who has been ordered to have sex with this guy. Yeah. There, There is no consent here. This is a... And that... Looking at it from today's perspective, Kirk should not sleep with her. Right. And also, in addition to it being the fact that she is a slave and this is not consensual, the other reason Kirk shouldn't sleep with her is that he has stood his ground in every other way during this episode. And it's a a flaw in his character that he could be so so swayed by uh, a pretty face and And, and and given in that way. Then again, I mean, that was Roddenberry. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you look at the feature film he did when he did his first feature, I can't remember the name of it, but it was totally a sex film. You go all the way back to the Orion sex slave. I mean, this is clearly 
in Roddenberry, you know, this particular thing. Yeah. Uh, but the camera tilts up to the lamp and anytime people are kissing and we kill, tilt up to something, I think we have an implication of what happened next. And then there's a dissolve. And of course, we dissolve to the lamp and the light is out showing the passage of time. And Kirk is asleep and we hear Captain and he wakes up and there's the proconsul. Talk about a rude awakening. <laughs> it's a good thing he pulled his pants back on, is what I was thinking. <laughs> Should we have our little talk now? So far on this planet, we've kept you rather busy. I don't wonder you slept through the afternoon. Which, by the way, I think Kirk would have woken up. He's his men are in prison. He's about to get killed. I don't think he would lazily sleep the day away. No, um, of course not. <laughs> And we hear a little plant that a communicator has gone missing. Merrick enters and searches Kirk for this communicator, doesn't find it. That's because he has it. <laughs> I am sorry I was detained. I trust that it was nothing further you required. Nothing except perhaps an explanation. Because you're a man, I owe you that. You must die shortly. And because you are a man. And then he looks at Merrick. And this is, Ralph, what you were talking about before. It's the line. Would you leave us, Merrick? The thoughts of one man to another cannot possibly interest you. Those lines that the proconsul says to Merrick yeah. is the, the straw that broke the camel's back for Merrick. Sure. And that is what saved the lives of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Mm -hmm. So Merrick exits and he says, Because you are a man, I gave you some last hours as a man. Which is a line I always, as a kid, you know, as a 12-year-old as a boy, this seemed like a great thing. Unfortunately, we must demonstrate that uh, defiance is intolerable. Scott, what episode did that remind you of? Defiance is intolerable. Like an empire saying that they can't let anyone openly de defy them. Oh, absolutely. Mirror, mirror. It's mirror, mirror. This, yep. this Roman world is very similar to mirror, mirror. It's the um, empire. Both the of empire. them are the empire. Yep. But I've learned to respect you. I promise you, you will die easily, quickly. I thank you. And my friends. And that time comes the same, of course. It's time to head off to the arena, and I love that he says, Oh, we've preempted 15 minutes on the early show for you, in full color. We guarantee you a splendid audience. I, I have a question. When Kirk is being led away from the proconsul, what do you think Kirk is thinking at this point? Do you think that he feels like he's a goner, that this is it for him and for Spock and McCoy? Yes, to be. He has not heard from Scotty since that last, you know, quick exchange. No uh, a cavalry has come over the hill, oh, yeah. especially because he told him not to through Coke Green. So, like, what do you think that Kirk is thinking? Like, well, I guess this is it. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to tell you two entirely separate and contradictory thoughts. I think the way this episode is constructed, yes, he is thinking, oh, maybe this is it. But I think from what we know about Kirk's character, that can't possibly be true. Is I that, agree. Is that Kirk's character never he how many times has he been literally about to be killed in one way or another that he is still looking for some way to oh, get out of it? Oh, yeah. absolutely. And, and as we know, Kirk doesn't believe in a no-win scenario. We're back up at the Enterprise where we hear that all banks are ready to disrupt the power on the planet's surface. By the way, one thing that they didn't do a lot of time on, and you only have so much time in this episode, is they can watch TV on the Enterprise. So they could have been watching a whole bunch of these things that are happening to find out what's going on. That's a good point. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Before tonight's first heat, a simple execution. But stay tuned to this channel. There's a lot of excitement coming your way. And Kirk is there, and we hear, make it a quick, simple thrust. Don't move. You'll only die harder. 
He's so great. That guy is so great. <laughs> Jack and Perkins. <laughs> in comes Flavius, who I think we've kind of forgotten about. And so he comes out of nowhere and goes, and the proconsul makes a gesture and they grab those machine guns and Flavius gets killed. Flavius, uh, a final act of heroism. Mm -hmm. He has lived his last moments by his own philosophy, one that Kirk shares, where man must fight to live. And Kirk takes that moment to grab the executioner, uses him as a human shield, kills one guy with a short sword, kicks another. And at this moment on the Enterprise, we hear now Mr. Chekhov activate and they knock all the power out and everything goes dark and Kirk gets a chance to escape. We're getting to the next scene with Kirk coming, mm -hmm. coming to the cell. Mm -hmm. And the day before, there was going to be a rewrite on that scene. Gene Roddenberry was was rewriting it, and it was late in the day. And so he he promised me, he said, uh, "You know, I I I don't have the scene now, but I will write it tonight. I will have it at the studio at six o'clock tomorrow morning." And so I said, "Okay." And so I was there at six o'clock, and it was there just like he had promised. I've done other promises like that where they weren't there, but it was there. And so I had from six o'clock until 7.30 to work on the scene. And like it was going to be the big finale. And Ted Cassidy came roaming into the set. And I, 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 I've never known exactly where he came from. I always figured he came from Michigan, possible because it was, it was on the next door stage. I could tell you where he came from, Ralph, because where? this, this moment is also on the blooper reel. Ted Cassidy. Well, well, I, well I, I staged that scene. Oh, you staged it? Yes. You, oh, my gosh. That is but, hilarious. Well, but, but that's, that's why I'm saying I'm not, I didn't know where he was coming from. And I, I just assumed he might come from Mission Impossible, which was right next door. He was actually filming The New Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. That's where he was. Okay. So he's on the lot. But he because he had done Star Trek, he was around there. And when I saw him, and so I had that all planned out everybody knew except bill the so camera, you gotta explain crew, you gotta explain what it was knew, the camera crew knew they were gonna do it, it it's what so what, what happened was it was the scene where kirk goes back to the cell to free spock and mccoy and right. ted cassidy comes out of nowhere runs onto the set picks off william shatner and carries him off the all, all the way back to, to, to exactly where he had come in from so it was a long carry yeah. oh that was all planned it's that it's hilarious it, it, it's in the blooper reel and it's hilarious it's one I, of the I great moments on, i've seen it on the, unfortunately the film on on the loop blooper reel is kind of fading i wish they'd do a remake you know restore it yeah absolutely um, so, but Kirk runs into the dungeon. There is no Ted Cassidy. He fires, uh, his weapon at the lock and breaks it. McCoy and Spock come out and very concerned. They say, what happened Jim? What did they do to you, Captain? They threw me a few curves. No time to explain. <laughs> and then the guards show up in both directions. They're in each other's line of fire. And he turns to Merrick again, cutting him down one more time and says, I pity you, Captain Merrick. At least watch and see how men die. Swords only! He calls him Captain Merrick, not oh, Mericus. You know, he calls him Captain Merrick as if to say, you are not a Roman. 
you never were, you never will be. And you're right. Wow. That's the ultimate takedown. And that's the moment of truth. And we're in the midst of a fight scene and our guys are doing pretty well. Spock gets a sword. They're sort of backing up into a defensible position in the cell. And the camera pushes in on Merrick, who has that communicator. Starship, lock in on this. Three to be And as he's saying the word up, Proconsul stabs him in the back. And it is... It's a violent scene for, for uh, a show that was filmed in 1967. And then he pulls the knife out. There's blood on the knife. And Merrick, like it's such a great scene. He stumbles. And as he tosses, as he tosses the communicator into the cell, he is smiling as if to say, like, this is all I got. This is all I have to give. I think it's such a great moment. I think he finally passed the test that he failed at Starfleet Academy. I think he finally, this is it. And I'm wondering, Ralph, did you at any moment, were you thinking about Bridge on the River Kwai when you filmed this last moment? Because that's what it's always made. It's always made me think of Alec Guinness stumbling towards the uh, plunger to blow up the bridge at the end of Kwai. When I'm doing a scene, I'm just thinking about the scene to make it real. So what happens is, the communicator is into the cell and you hear Scotty say, uh, ready to beam up. Just as Kirk, Spock, and McCoy begin to dematerialize, the Roman guards are shooting their guns. And of course, the bullets are going right through the transporter beam. It is, I don't care how many times you've seen bread and circuses. This is such a great nick of time, edge of your seat nail biter that is still effective time and time again and is such a well-directed scene ralph i have always loved the scene it is such a rousing exciting moment so to be able to tell you that you just staged and shot that scene brilliantly and just when they're when they're done beaming up you see the Roman guards and you see that the pro council is looking because even though he knows about Merrick and Kirk and where they're from, odds are he has never seen really the technology of the 23rd century in action until this moment. And the way he's twirling the bloody knife around in his hand, like he was like, even he was impressed. Yeah. Thank you. I think it's a great scene too. I also love that we had the earlier line of it would be shame to beam up a bullet ridden corpse which they're a second away from beaming up three bullet. Those oh, guys right. fired a little bit earlier. The other thing uh, is watching the pro council. It looks to me like the actor is startled by the sound of the machine guns. Not the actor is acting like he's startled by the sound of the machine. guns. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. You, you see, you see, uh, uh, I think Logan he was, Ramsey, he like, he like, it's, you know, it's, a, it's it's like a real joke. Well, well, that's an actor using, using that, for himself. Now, here's the other thing about about this emergency beam up in the nick of time, saving the lives of the landing party, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Now, here's an episode where Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, the Enterprise crew, accomplished nothing. They didn't change the society. They didn't change the direction. You know, they didn't stop a war. They didn't stop the gladiatorial games from happening. They they didn't change the fact that there is slavery on this planet. The goal was to get out and escape. And that is that is exactly what happened. Yep. And that is all that happens. They did not violate the prime directive, not, not even a little bit. And earlier in the episode, when Merrick says that some of his men are dead, 
the ones who were able to survive adapted. What happened to them? Like, like, are they, are they happy on the planet? Like there was no effort to like save the survivors of the SS Beagle. The goal, this is the, really the only episode where, where nothing was really accomplished. They just got out of there. They got away. That, they, they got just away got with away. Their lives. And yep. it's such a, and it's such a, again, the build up to that moment with the uh, Scotty uh, shorting out the power and, you know, Kirk getting out of the arena in the split second as the, the guards are firing on him. And then the fight in the cell and then the emergency beam up and the, the death of Merrick. It's such a, it's one of the great directed scenes in Star Trek. And it's just something that I think often gets overlooked. And isn't it a shame that the network that really wanted action shows, and they had an action show. Yeah. And because of their own thin skins, they didn't utilize it. I mean, this is an action show. This is yes, exactly totally. what they wanted. This is exactly what Stan Robertson yes. at NBC, this is exactly what he wanted. And, you know, the pacing of this episode, again, all the ideas, I mean, certainly the the satire of TV, you know, maybe they didn't dig that, obviously, but but everything else about it, so many great moments, the acting, the performances, the direction, obviously the cinematography, as we always talk about. Even the, even the, the track music. They did a great job with using track yeah. music and, and making it seem like it was yeah. it was scored for this episode. Absolutely. Um, so we're back on the bridge. Scotty gets a commendation for basically saving the day. Spock and McCoy enter and we start talking about sun worship. It seems illogical for a sun worshiper to develop a philosophy of total brotherhood. Sun worship is usually a primitive superstition religion. And then we hear Uhura, who comes in and says, I'm afraid you have it all wrong, Mr. Spock, all of you. I've been monitoring some of their old-style radio waves. The Empire spokesman trying to ridicule their religion. But he couldn't. Don't you understand? It's not the sun up in the sky. It's the son of God. Wow. Wow. What a great moment. And again, no matter how many times, yes, brilliant moment. So this scene, uh, which which was filmed the same day that you filmed the teaser, like to shoot the first part of the episode and the last part of the episode, that's... You know, it's still hard to get my wrap my head around that, but but that's a, that's how they make movies. I, yeah, that's how <laughs> they do it. Sure, for sure. Um, so, Ralph, was there ever any discussion on the set about this idea? Like, no, it was just because I think this is a brilliant piece of writing. I think the moment is great. I always have loved it, and I have real problems with it. Real problems with it, philosophically, not in terms of an episode of television. I think it's totally great. In terms of Star Trek, in term, because what it implies is that, particularly her line, things like her saying, he tried to ridicule it, but he couldn't. This implies that Christianity is the right religion. That is what the implication of this moment is. And, it, and, it, and, it, and, I, and as a Jewish kid growing up, and then as an atheist, I have a problem with that in terms of Star Trek. I, re- I really do. But there again, you've got Shatner and Nimoy. Yep. yep. Me, I mean, the Jewish triad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's interesting too is then what happens next. Caesar and Christ, they had them both. And the word is spreading only now. Philosophy of total love and total brotherhood. It will replace their imperial Rome 
but it will happen in their 20th century. Well, I think about, well, what was Christianity for the thousand years after Rome or the next thousand years for that matter? Wouldn't it be something to watch, to be a part of, to see it happen all over again? And there's these big smiles. And what's, what's weird to me is the implication is like, yeah, Christianity was totally a philosophy of total love and brotherhood. And that's just how it went. There was no problems with it at all. And again, I don't mean I'm not trying to criticize Christians or the Christian faith in any way whatsoever. In fact, I will say that for me personally, Jesus is one of my heroes. I know that sounds strange to say from a Jewish atheist, but philosophically, I am 100% aligned with the stuff that he said. But in terms of there's a lot of stuff that happened historically that ain't so good. And the fact that in the 23rd century, they're looking at it like, hey, this is all awesome, or just this is the truth is something that, that rubs me the wrong way. I have a question, and it's based on questions that have been asked of me. And that is, in the writing, how did this script come into being. I mean, people have pointed out to me that it is a well-known fact how anti-religion Roddenberry is. Right. Somebody suggested, well, one of the producers was Jewish. I still don't know about Kuhn. His father was a, was a, was a Nazi, so I don't know whether he was Jewish. How about Nugel? What about uh, Bob Justman? Well, I think he was Jewish, wasn't he? Yes. The script started with, and I didn't know this, John Knubel. New, yeah, John Newble, right, right. Newble. He was a, a native of American Samoa. He was born in the South Pacific. Oh, wow, that's interesting. How, how did this script come into being? Here's the thing. So John Newble wrote, wrote the treatment, and then and then Gene Kuhn picked it up, wrote three drafts, and then Roddenberry wrote the last two versions, yeah. and then did did uh, you know script revisions throughout the production of the episode. <laughs> so my impression impression was that Roddenberry wrote the tag. In terms of, look, the way that history has played out for these last 2,100 years, that's now happening in 20th century Rome, and, and that's the way it's going to play out. I never thought that that they were saying that, you know, Christianity was was the, the, the favored religion. I mean, you know, like McCoy said, you know, we have many beliefs. I, I felt like they were they were reveling in the opportunity to to experience this one part of many religions play out mm-hmm. versus favoring one moment over every other. I never I never looked at it as any kind of favoritism in, in any way. I was never offended by it. I wasn't offended by it at all. I'm not offended by it. That's not yes. yeah. Yeah. Offended would be much, much stronger a word than how I feel. Yeah. Uh, no, what what I feel is it's the wrong choice for Star Trek. That's 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 what I feel. I'm not offended by it in any way. I think it's between this and we find the one God sufficient. Those are two statements. This episode, two statements that seem to reinforce a particular perspective. Uh, but it's funny to me. This always felt like this is where it had to be in the mid '60s. You know what I mean? Like you couldn't come up and say a entirely secular, non-religious message. That, that wasn't where, and even today, this would be a controversial thing. Well, actually, in terms of Roddenberry, the, re- the other reason why I feel like this last part of the episode was written by Roddenberry, mm-hmm. when Star Trek was gaining popularity, like big-time popularity throughout the 70s, and Paramount went back and forth 
with are we going to bring Star Trek back as a TV, as a as a TV series again or are we going to make a movie? One of the story developments that they were exploring for a feature film was that the Enterprise goes in search of God. I mean that's right. That's the real basic plot is that they were going in search of God and then ultimately it went uh, in the direction of Star Trek the motion picture where it was spiritual in the sense that Beecher was looking for its creator. And eventually they did go looking for God in Star Trek V, which, you know, while not a great movie, has its merits, uh, although uh, not many people would agree with that. So with regards to the way that Bread and Circuses came to its conclusion, uh, that I feel like it was very much Roddenberry's pen. And while Roddenberry has also been been seen as uh, agnostic in some ways or an atheist he did have a spiritual side in which he wanted the enterprise to to go in search of god and i think this is the closest they really came to it because you know ultimately in star trek 5 what they saw was not god but in terms of like what people had to say about bread and circuses i have and we have the director of the episode with us right now and I would love to hear what you have to say about Bread and Circuses, Ralph Sinetsky. Well, it's always been on my lesser list, mainly because of the gladiator scene. And ever since I started with you and have been infected with deep diveitis, <laughs> I've given you my interpretation of what I wish we could have done, of what I would think it should have been in the gladiator scene. And outside of that, I mean, as I've watched it, uh, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of the series, of, I, of, the, of the episode. I'm really glad to hear you say that because like while I was watching it, just obviously to prepare for this, Ralph, I, I know how much you cherish your experiences on this side of paradise and metamorphosis as you should. I mean, those are very, very special episodes, but while I was rewatching Bread and Circuses, I really had a, a reaction of like, wait a minute, this this is actually really, really good. Much better than I ever really gave it credit for. I've always enjoyed it. But I really think that there is a lot to love and a lot to admire about Bread and Circuses. And it's not an episode that gets talked about very much. So I would love to hear what the fans think about Bread and Circuses. Let us know on our Facebook page where you kind of rank bread circuses, how you feel about bread circuses after our deep dive conversation. Uh, maybe it's gone up in your assessment, but Steve, I would love to hear what you think of bread and circuses now after all these years and after this conversation. So I think it's a totally entertaining episode. And I think what's interesting, Ralph, is that it doesn't have the heartfelt emotional power of the other two episodes that we've talked about with you. But in terms of an adventure, it's actually in a lot of ways a more exciting adventure. It's a lot of fun. It deals with some interesting issues. It has, as we've said, one of what I think is the most important scenes between McCoy and Spock in the history of Star Trek. I think it establishes so much of their characters. And I'm going to say just very quickly what what I there's an episode that I wish that it was, which is that I wish science fiction is really good at making us look at ourselves. And this, I think, was an opportunity and maybe and maybe the network would never have let it on the air. But the idea of not how are we not like Rome, but it's how are we like Rome? 
What can seeing Rome in the 20th century teach us about us in the 20th century? And Mm -hmm. I feel like they kind of veered away from that. And I think part of that, the, the God thing, the son of the God thing allows us to feel a little bit superior to Rome in the 20th century. And I wish we could have explored that more. That's not a criticism of the episode. That's a, this is what Steve would be more interested in. Well, I want to say on top of that, that I think that this episode does hold a mirror up to society in the 60s and in the 21st century because of the satire of network television. And especially with with reality TV, I, I think, you know what, that's that's a lot right there. Uh, the fact that you have an episode that has gained relevancy over the last 55 years because of of the place that network television has in our everyday lives, especially over these last two years when we've watched a lot more of it because we were stuck inside our homes and because in the last 20 years, because of the the escalation of reality TV. I think right there, that alone is a is a holds a mirror up to our society. And I think that's something that does get overlooked about the episode. The other thing that I noticed about this episode that I never noticed before, you know, we talked about the transition between Desilu and uh and Paramount. So, you know, in the ending credits where it shows the image of Balak at the very, very end of the ending credits. Up to and including the trouble with Tribbles, it would say a Desilu production in association with Norway Corporation. At the end of Bread and Circuses, the ending credit says a Paramount production in association with Norway Corporation. So this was the start of the transition. And uh, I'm, I'm guessing, Ralph, that as you came back for Obsession and Return to Tomorrow, that intensified. And I have one more one more incident that uh, I'd saved for the end and then almost forgot it. Uh, halfway through on the third or fourth day, Herb Solo, the head of production for Desilu, and John Meredith Lucas came down to the set and they had an opening suddenly and they wanted to know if I would do it. And it was not to start prepping a show the minute I finished. It was one one after that, and I said, well, I can't because it's the Jewish high holidays. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Herb Solo said, wait a minute. So he got out a calendar, and he started checking, and he said, Rosh Hashanah will fall on, and he put a, put, pointed out the dates. He said, that'll be during the prep, and that's no problem. You'll just have your prep ready. Uh-huh. And then he went on further, and he saw that, Yom Kippur was going to fall on Saturday, but Kol Nidra would be on Friday. And he said, that's no problem. John Meredith Lucas is a member of the Directors Guild. He can come in in the afternoon whenever you need to leave. And so that that was how I ended up doing Obsession. Oh, Oh, okay. At the time, I was a little confused. I thought, well, that's very strange to have an opening. I mean, I knew how schedules, how directors were booked. And it's only later, and I'm pretty sure, I don't, don't know this for sure, but I'm pretty sure that it occurred because that was when Joe Pevney gave his resignation. Oh, wow. And I have a feeling that he was scheduled to do, and you maybe you will have some reference to find out if that is true, that he was scheduled to do that show. And Joe 
Joe Pevney, and I didn't know him as well as I knew Mark Daniels, but Joe had a very close relationship with Gene Kuhn. They had known each other way back. And uh, I had the feeling that a combination that with the new rules that were now coming in because of the new hours being set forth by Doug Kramer, the head of production for Paramount, that that could have affected it. And also that maybe just his allegiance to Gene Kuhn and maybe he was going to leave with him. But anyway, that that's that story. Well, we're looking forward to having you join us again in a few episodes for our deep dive of uh, obsession. Uh, that'll be, that's your fourth episode. That'll be your fourth uh, uh, podcast of Enterprise Incidents to join us on. And uh, Steve, uh, where can people find you and Enterprise Incidents? Well, social media is the place for you to go. You can search for us on Facebook. You can look for Enter Incidents on Twitter, Enterprise Incidents on Instagram. Subscribe to the show, please. I can subscribe at all the places. Apple Podcasts, go to Spotify, subscribe there too. Why not? On YouTube, subscribe there as well. Leave your comments. Back on iTunes, oh, you know what? You forgot to leave a review. Well, I think now it's time for you to type up that five-star review. And after you've done with that, you can follow me on Twitter at SRMorris, SRMorris1 on Instagram. And if you like movies, you can follow the cinephiles. And since you obviously like gladiators, why don't you check out Gladiator? We already ma- mentioned it. Winner of the Best Picture, starring Russell Crowe. Uh, Scott, how would people find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance. Make sure you share Enterprise Incidents with your fellow Star Trek fans, whether they are diehard fans of the original series or just love Star Trek in all of its forms. And just once again, Ralph Sinensky, thank you so much for taking this time to join us for the entire duration of our deep dive of Bread and Circus is here on Enterprise Incidents. Now, you have a blog, Ralph. A, where website, can, a website. A website. Where can people read your website? Either Google Ralph Cinematrek or just go to Sinensky.com. Sinensky.com certainly is the easier way to go. So we look forward to having you back for Obsession. Meanwhile, the next episode of Enterprise Incidents is going to be a fun one because just like we got to see some of Spock's backstory in a mock time, we're going to see a whole lot more of Spock's backstory as we take the journey to Babel. That is next on Enterprise Incidents. Until then, keep going boldly.